This week, Chris Feistel talks about his role on season three of Narcos and going after the gentlemen of the Cali Cartel. Well, there was there was a scene in the in the Narcos series about the Cali Cartel season three in which I think it's Pacho has a guy tied up to four motorcycles. So is there any truth to that? Was that one of their techniques or is that just straight out of Hollywood? That's no, that's actually another story. It's a little different than how they portrayed it in Narcos. But what happened there was, is that, and you know this, Steve, better than anybody, the ongoing war between Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel, right? So just to give you some context, the whole Cali Medellin war starts back in late 1987, when one of Pacho's guys kills Negro Pavon, who was one of Pablo's guys. Pablo gets incensed, and he wants uh, the killer dead. So they go to Pacho. Pablo calls Pacho and says, hey, turn this guy over. He killed my man. I want him dead. Pacho's like, no, I'm not turning him over. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Everybody, welcome back to Game of Crimes. This is the best show on the internet if you want to hear me and Murph. In fact, it's the only show on the internet if you want to hear me and Murph. And I am your host, Morgan Wright, joined by my, literally, by my partner in crime. This is the last time we're doing a recording together in Loudoun County, Virginia, because the son of a bitch is moving to Florida. Tell everybody who you are, you treasonous moving bastard. <laughs> Steve Murphy here, better known as Murph. Yeah, now you're better known as some other things, pal. Well, many things. That uh, that uh, stripper name contest that was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I like the one that was put up too. I don't know who I forgot who put it up, but it's it's ten percent stud, ninety percent muffin. That's Steve Murphy's stud muffin. <laughs> hey, I've got a soft side. It's called a belly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Well, hey, thank you guys all for tuning in. Just uh, want to tell you, I mean, we got a lot of great responses about Zach. I mean, in fact, one guy, and again, I forget the name. He says, what, you're leaving us? He said it on Twitter, said, you're leaving us hanging this like being pushed out of a plane at 20,000 feet. You know, so, <laughs> yes, it's called a tease. It's the reason the news always says, can your cat kill you with just her claws? Tune in at 10. Exactly, exactly. Plus, we, And that's the cool thing is we do it in two because who wants to listen to a radio show or us talk for four hours well, straight? Well, apparently there's a couple out there that want to, but I say, no, we got to break it up. Mostly it's logistics. I mean, it takes time to edit things. When It's different with me and Murph if we just have two people but when you put a third person in there then there's a lot of work that has to go into the editing uh you know to tighten things up so it, it's a time issue more than it is just a, a you know that's the way we want to do it so it's more of a time issue so hey but anyway you guys get that's double the fun every week what other podcast out there gives you two times to listen to us only us so anyway it's just some just some exactly. quick housekeeping before we get started Head on over to that Apple review, please. It really helps us, not only with the advertisers getting people on, but it helps other people to discover the podcast and the great stories we're telling. So give us five stars. It's magic. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine, all rolled into one. It's David Copperblaine. So that's what we'll call it now. David Copperblaine <laughs> helps us out a lot. Head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got everything over there, merch, uh, our mailing list. Uh, we're look. We're also you know reviewing how we're going to be able to do live events. So as soon as Murph gets settled, you bastard moving on me. Um, no more cold winters. No, but that's what you think, pal. Wait, wait till I ship you some snow. 
right. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Uh, I've had enough of that to last me a lifetime. And also follow us over there on the old social media, on the interwebs, at Game of Crimes on Twitter and Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And also, the best part, Patreon. After we get done recording this intro today, Murph and I are recording our next great episode for Patreon. And we are talking about the shit show that is Loudoun County Public Schools. Why? Because we both live in Loudoun County. So you got to stay tuned and find out yes. because it involves a criminal investigation. Uh, it, it's a serious issue. And two of my kids went to Stonebridge High School, which is where one of the places this happened. So you got, but you got to join us at uh, patreon.com slash game of crimes. We have a ton of great stuff. Uh, we've also got case of the month coming up. It's one of my homicides that I worked back in the day. This one sucks, and if you tune in, you'll find out why, but uh, the suspect never should have been able to do what he did, which is uh, kill one guy and wound his wife. So anyway, you got to tune in to us over there. Also go to paypal.com, uh, use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier. Even if it's just a one-off, we really appreciate your support, and it's going to allow me to ship snow to Murph on a regular basis so that he does not forget what it's like leaving me up here, you traitorous bastard. Hey, you know, going back to what you said on Patreon, join us there because we're going to be talking about all kinds of shit birds this month. That's just, oh. there's no lack of material. <laughs> and then we got some good stuff coming up next month too. Well, we're going to save that, but it's really, a lot of these are issues that are very topical that are going to hit home and they're kind of controversial, but we want to take a different approach to it. We just don't want to get involved in the politics, but we want to take a step back like we did with Gabby Petito and say, what's it really like to do this? So you'll only find that at patreon.com slash game of crimes. Hit us up over there. Now, remember, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We always take the story seriously, but... We never take ourselves serious. And if you've been listening to us, you know that. We're idiots, but we're comfortable with that. Now, now, now speak for yourself, Murph. <laughs> I'm including you there, that brother. One of us has to be the leader. The other has to be the follower. And I think you might be the leader on this one. Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> it's my natural leadership ability coming out here, but not, not in the idiot category. But anyway... Before we get into all of this stuff, Murph, guess what time it is? What time is it? It is time for Small, Small Town, Town Police Blotters. You're a little slow. you got to speed things up, man. I know you're moving to Florida where everything moves slow. but we, I'm going to be a turtle. I'm, I'm, I'm a moving turtle. to Florida to be a turtle. Hey, and I have to I have to make do a mea culpa because uh, Gary Warden Jr. sent us a couple stories and I failed to include them, and so <sighs> I'm going to split them up. So we're doing one of his stories this time and going to do one of his stories next time. So Gary, it's all Merce's fault because he got me so distracted talking about moving to Florida. It hurt. Me. <laughs> anyway, not really, but anyway, Gary, Gary, I promise you, he will be punished. Yeah, well, just going out to lunch with you is punishment enough. So <laughs> anyway, hey Steve, guess what? This is in Mill Hall. Pennsylvania, the great okay. town of Mill Hall. A case of theft was investigated by state police at Lamar on August 26th. According to police, Kayla Shank, 24, of Mill Hall, stole a Weeb Vibe, a Wee Vibe chorus couples from a 24-year-old Logantown woman. The theft took place along Hogan Boulevard in Bald Eagle Township, Clinton County. Do you know Wait what a Wee Vibe? No, I've got, uh, there's a picture in my mind, but I was going to ask you, what is a Wee Vibe? It is a vibrator valued at $189, and Holy according cow. to the description, to become one, the only remote-controlled couples toy that truly understands you, intelligent but intuitive, course allows you to experience the most powerful pleasure, a shared simultaneous orgasm. Only for $199, it comes in purple, looks like magenta, and blue, whatever fits your <laughs> colors. <laughs> 
Oh, let me tell you what. If I see something that looks like that in that situation, I don't. I think I'm going to leave. Purple, blue, or magenta? I actually had to return from a burglary case one time. We recovered a lot of the serial burglars, some kids. Uh, I had to return a vibrator to a lady one time because it was listed on. <laughs> they still had it. So uh, I had it in a brown paper bag. I was trying to be very discreet. And she was like, oh, no, there it is. Uh, like, oh, my God. <laughs> Bruce, where you been, Bruce? Missed your brother. <laughs> hey, speaking of that, out of Atherton, wherever the hell this Atherton is, on Irving Avenue, 747 a.m. on a Tuesday, a landlord-tenant dispute involving assault with frozen food was reported. And you know what the guy said who got assaulted? He said, Ouch. dude, that was cold. <laughs> and dude, that was sick. <laughs> that was cold. You assaulted me with frozen food. It was cold. And it, that was cold. What time of day was that? Uh, 7.47 a.m. in the morning. Jeez, what? Is, I mean, frozen waffles? What are we getting out of here? Frozen, frozen sausage? Peas? Who knows, man? No, don't, don't pull out your sausage. I'm sorry. You keep it there. Hey, speaking of uh, things that are just unexplainable, the police blotter out of Erie, and it might be Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, who knows? But it says, a man called Erie Police at about 8.30 p.m. Wednesday, March 7th, to report a suspicious peanut in his backyard. A peanut? Like a like a shelled peanut? Like a peanut. What makes a peanut suspicious? I don't know. Maybe it was laying there. It was smashed. Who knows? What? I, why would you? I don't know. One out of 12. One out of 12. Report to a call of suspicious peanut. Corn of, you know. He peed on what? Oh, peanut. 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 What? I, mm. Well, if you think that's bad. Now, this one's evokes some memories for me, and I'll tell you why in a second. So Friday, at at the Walmart, of course at the Walmart, police receive a report of a newborn infant found in a trash can. Upon investigation, officers discovered it was only a burrito. <laughs> that must have been one spicy burrito if it sounded and acted like a baby. Well, I had a case one time, Long, very long story short, but uh, somebody said they saw a baby in a dumpster, and we spent three days going through the landfill and everything. I've talked about this before. Couldn't find anything, so first thing I saw, but I wish I would have found a burrito that time. It would have been like, hmm, uh, spicy <laughs> or mild? <laughs> uh, huh. Anyway. You know, that's, that's see something, say something. That's what that is there. That's what you, you know, that's okay. You know, we'd rather re respond to that than not respond and actually have it find out to be true. So anyway, Especially Steve. if it's a kid. Yeah. So Steve, Steve, on to the next part, the final part here. What year was it? Okay. So this comes from the Chattanooga News out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Rocky Hi, Top. Rocky nice. Top. It's my old stomping grounds. That's your old Just stomping grounds. So this bit. happened on March 30th. Now, you have to figure out what year it was. Two men for gambling. Two men held for gambling. Three bound over. Police make arrests and drive against numbers and tip board operators. Two men were arrested Monday on charges of possessing gaming devices shortly after four others arrested Saturday appeared in city court to answer similar charges. Here's what they found. Harold Taylor, 38, and Jewel Conley, 33, were arrested by patrolmen C.D. Varnell and Logan Stroud. Conley was charged with fast and reckless driving. Both were charged with vagrancy and loitering. And when a search revealed butter and egg market paraphernalia, both were charged with possessing a gaming device. What was the what's the gaming device? I guess it's butter and egg market. I mean, Murph, this is from your time, not mine. I thought you might know what it is. So guess what year was it? Was it March 30th, 1927, 1937, or 1947? Uh, I'm gonna say 37. Because of the depression. I'm depressed because you actually got that right. <laughs> Look at there. Applying common sense, and I got it right for a change. Uh, I'm going to have a party today. Look at it. 
Is today Saturday? Uh, I don't no. know. No, no it's, it's not. It's Wednesday. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so that's what it oh, is. Wait a minute. No, let's talk a little bit more about me getting this right, because that doesn't happen very often. Uh, Murph, we don't have time. <laughs> We've got to get into the episode. Look, people are waiting to hear about this next episode. So if you thought Zach was good, this next one is going to be awesome. Why? Because it kind of ties everything together. We've got season three of Narcos Mexico coming up. This will be the final installment, right? We've had three seasons of Narcos. The first two were about you and JP and going after uh, Pablo, who has assumed room temperature. Well, this one is your buddy, Chris Feistel, surfer dude. Yes, sir. You know, surfer boy. So, Steve, set it up for us. You got it. So Chris and I were agents together. We went through the academy right behind each other. He was a few months behind me, but we both ended up in Miami. Steve, you together. mean like literally behind him? Were you like three inches? You got it. You didn't do social no, distancing. This is then? not Kansas. This is not Kansas, Morgan. Don't talk like that. You're gonna get us in trouble. Just because you did that doesn't mean everybody else does it. <laughs> Asshole to belly button. <laughs> Anyway, Chris got to Miami. Chris is a big, tall, strapping guy, uh, former athlete, former Virginia Beach cop who had been watching Miami Vice like me and really took it to heart. <laughs> he had hair down the middle of his back. This, he, you know, what is he, six? How tall did he? Six, three, six, four, six, five? He's a big dude. Big boy. Got this long, blonde hair, sticks out like a sore thumb. But he made some great cases. Uh, and wait till you hear what the motivator was for him to cut his hair, because it took him years to grow that. I think it took six or seven years to grow it that long. But uh, what he did in Colombia, as he's going to tell you, is equivalent to what Javier and I did. But he was in a little bit more dangerous situations because where Javier and I were living with the Colombian National Police in a base, at least at nighttime, we were safe. He and his buddies, Dave Mitchell and Jerry Salama, <laughs> were living out in safe houses in Cali with no protection other than themselves. So this is going to be a great story. You're finally going to hear the truth. Uh, we still don't know why Netflix only gave uh, him one season because it could have gone much longer. Uh, of course, ours too good too, but at least we got two seasons out of it. But uh, And that's a little sticking point for Chris. But you're getting ready to hear the true story about what really happened with the Cali cartel. And the gentlemen of the Cali cartel are either room temperature or no In longer. Inmates. Inmates, right. Yeah. So Steve... Got to ask you one more question. Are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? Ladies and gentlemen, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on, because here we go. Bring on Chris Feistel. Okay, everybody. This is welcome back. This is going to be fun, Murph, because I feel like this is Narcos Redux. This is like Apocalypse Now Part Two, because we had first you and JP, right, talking about we had episode one, still our most popular episode. Our Patreon stuff is uh, the first 12 Patreon episodes we're doing are all about doing a deep dive. And now, Steve, I'm going to let you do the honors because this is your buddy. And the other thing, too, is he's a much bigger star in season three of Narcos. <laughs> in real life, he was also. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's my honor today to uh, bring in a long, long-time friend. Uh, we were right behind each other in the academy, going through the DEA academy. We both ended up in Miami. It was our first post back in, uh, I got there in 87. I think you got there in 88, right, Chris? That's right. Um, but I tell you what, see, Chris had the ability to grow his hair. Like, all I did was lose my freaking hair the whole time. I thought I had it long in the back. That's back when mullets were in style. And, you know, we all thought we were Don Johnson. But the guy we got on the show today actually emulated 
Don Johnson with had the hair down the middle of his back. He's blonde hair, surfer uh, had dude, the, surfer had the dude, silk man. shirts, big, tall, <laughs> slender, well-built young man. It's an honor to bring on our friend Chris Feistel. Chris, thanks for being with us today, brother. Hey, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Morgan. It's great to be with you guys today. How you say that now? We're not done yet. You may change exactly your mind at the end say. of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, before we get started, though, one real quick thing is um, we did episode six with Steve's partner, um, Kevin. Um, yeah, Kevin Stevens. That was, were you down there when Kevin was shot? Sure, absolutely. I was there, and we actually helped uh, out after the shooting. That's everybody dropped everything and came out to help. Yeah, and did you teach Murph the next time he goes running around with a submachine gun is to put some kind of fucking ID on that says DEA and not look <laughs> like just a gomer in the neighborhood? We, we've tried to teach Murph a lot of things over the years, but we, we, we've always seemed to be unsuccessful. Oh, I see how it's going. It's going to be a tag team against, is, man. against number one Murph today. I see Chris you. and I Chris and I talked beforehand. We're going to take you down. Hey, but, but the other thing, too, is we're going to set the stage here in a minute. But the other fun thing about this is you were the agent featured in season three of Narcos, and your buddy, you, the guy who played you, got to which is we're going to talk about the reality, Pedro Pascal, but uh, Javier was actually not down there during this time. But this really gets into the Cali cartel after the fall of the Medellin cartel. It's the gentleman of the Cali cartel. And you were down there for that whole thing. And they made uh, Narco season three after that. So we got seasons one, two, and three on the show here. And guess what's coming out, guys? Four. Narco season three, Mexico, November 5th. That's right, baby. Oh, there's a date. I didn't know there was a date out yet. Uh, yeah. It just came out yesterday. They just released a date yesterday. Cool. Yeah, so this will be, so we're going to get into that because there's kind of this, you know, maybe one of these days they'll make a show about me. Maybe I can get on Netflix and some of my exploits will become the stuff of legend. Well, we could go. That would be be a pretty quick show. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, we can go a lot of different directions with that statement right there. Oh, you're funny. Okay, this podcast's (laughs) over. All right. Well, hey. Well, as we like to do, Chris, when we bring somebody on, we, we kind of do this in four steps. You know, we kind of want to know, why did you get into law enforcement? You know, so what, what you were doing, and you had some interesting stuff you did in college. You know, what 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 possessed you to get into DEA? We're kind of going to set the context then for being in Columbia, because you like the Latin American countries. You like South America. I mean, you did a lot of work down there. And then let's talk about the Cali cartel and then kind of what you're doing later. So let's let us go back. And let's not go back to when you were in diapers, but uh, <laughs> let's go back to college. Because when we talked earlier, you kind of got interested in policing because of a summer job, uh, you know, as you were going to college. So let's let's dive in there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, when I was in college, I had a major in uh, criminal justice and government, and I actually wanted to go to law school and major in, you know, sports contracting and, and things like that. And uh, during the summer of my junior year, we went down to the beach in uh, Jersey Shore with a couple of my friends, and we were looking for jobs, obviously, to support ourselves while we were hanging out. Wait a out. minute. Did you get to meet Snooky and the situation, Mike Sorrentino? Did you run into any of the famous people from the Jersey Shore? I did not. I did not get to meet any of them. It was a little before their time. But uh, so when we got down to the shore, we needed a means of supporting ourselves. You know, we couldn't be out there surfing every day. So um, I ended up, after scouring the local job market there for the summer— uh, I was informed that the Wildwood Police Department was hiring summer or special police officers. So I said, let me give that a try. And I went in and applied. And sure enough, um, I got hired. And I parlayed that summer of three or four months working as a police officer into an internship. 
that I applied towards towards college. And that was what really got me interested in, in law enforcement, because at that point in time, I wasn't really thinking about that. I was thinking about law school and, and moving on after college. But Wait uh, a minute. You were going to become a lawyer? I was. <laughs> Why did you bring yourself down so far? Man, you came <laughs> way above that. <laughs> you know what I learned? And I realized very quickly that that would have been a mistake. And uh, I pursued a career in law enforcement. But hey, but don't skip over that part because you kind of glossed over that. Tell us where you had your first, you know, police job during the summer. So I worked at the Wildwood Police Department as a special or summer police officer. And we went to a one-week academy, which you look back now, I look at what, <laughs> what today's environment and— Don't shoot and, yourself. Don't arrest the mayor. You know, otherwise everything else, yeah. And, you know, we went through well, one week of classroom, which entailed firearms training, you know, uh, New Jersey uh, laws, statutes, you know, what we can do, use of force. That was all compiled into one week. And uh, sure enough, after that, we were we had weapons that we carried and we were just thrown out there on the street to be the summer police officers. Go out and save the world, young man. That's it. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> one week, I, I, as a resident of that place, I would feel, I would not feel that good if I knew a bunch of the police force had one week of training and probably what, four hours of firearms training? If that, probably, <laughs> if that. This but, is a gun. The bullet comes out this end. Do not point that at you. It's like it's like Zorro, you know, <laughs> Antonio Banderas, you know, and Anthony Hopkins. You know, pointy end goes in the other guy. That's all you need to know, right? Point, yep, click, shoot. That's right. Yep. But you got to yep. remember, this was 1986, and as you guys know, these beach communities during the summer, the population just swells. I mean, it, you know, quadruples or even more during the summer when you have all of the you know, all the kids and the families coming down to the Jersey Shore from, you know, New York and uh, South Philly, Pennsylvania. And boy, those communities get really large. So they need the police departments all in that area really need that influx of, of summer help to deal with some of the problems that go on there. So so here's your scenario, ladies. You got how tall are you, Chris? Six, three. Six three. You played. Blonde you played sports hair. in college, didn't yeah. you? Played basketball in college. Yeah. So you, you got the six foot three athlete, slender, well built, blonde Shirt hair, buttoned down to his navel with a gold chain, surfer dude, out now in a uniform, walking the beat. On hey, the beach. ladies. Hey, <laughs> and you were single. Was, of course, yeah. It was, Look at this, boy. Man, see, if we'd been your pimps back then, we could have set you up, brother. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was definitely a fun time for sure. Well, speaking of having a fun time, you caught on to this, too, and we were laughing, too, because it was uh, Mr. Kata, Mr. Kata, who kind of directed you. <laughs> All I can think of is, welcome back, Kata. Oh, that's so, exactly you know. right. Yeah, that's what everybody thought. But yeah, he was one of my criminal justice professors. He was a retired NYPD um, police officer, and he really guided me through my, my college uh, studies and, you know, I was able to go to him and ask him questions and, and what I would, should pursue, so especially after this summer police uh, internship and, and program that I did. I really got that law enforcement vibe. So, no, I, you know, I talked to him quite extensively about what kind of career I could pursue, what different agencies I should look at. And uh, he was always very helpful in, uh, in any questions that I had. What was uh, what shift were you assigned to there at the beach? So our first shift, we were walking the beat, as you said. It was nine at night to five in the morning. 
Well, they, they, they had his age, they were up that time anyway. They weren't going to bed till seven or eight in the morning. Are you kidding me? Right. So it was really no change in my itinerary, <laughs> except that I was out there working and, you know, carrying a, carrying a weapon. And so, you were making a buttload of money too, weren't you? I was making, I think I first started at $5 an hour. Yes, sir. There you go. Yeah. But, right. uh, but that was prime time. As you know, all these beach communities at night, everybody goes out. Oh, that yeah. was prime time to be out there walking a beat. There were, you know, there were always bar fights. There were, you know, thefts. Yeah, so what was what was the what was the average night like when you were working during the summer? Because I, you know, one of my buddies was the chief of police, or is the up at Martha's Vineyard, uh, you know, Oak Bluffs, and they had a they had a funny saying. It said, "Come on, pro or come on vacation, leave on probation," you know, and everybody was getting in trouble. What was the usual? What was your standard meat and potatoes type of uh, offenses that were going on during the summer that you that you as a seasonal police officer normally got to handle? Well, a lot of it were, were assaults, you know, bar fights, you know, people you'd coming out of the bars after drinking, you know, getting in altercations, um, thefts, you know, along the beach, things like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we arrested people for, you know, marijuana possession or, or other drugs. So uh, we did that. And we were mainly there to just kind of be those first responders until the real police officers showed up <laughs> and they can, you know, take charge of any situations if they got, uh, you know, at hand or became really violent or anything like that. Well, it was obvious from our pre-call that you actually had a knack for this because your first dope case was far bigger than Murph's first dope case. So... We want to hear about that first. Do you, you, you're excited. You got the badge. You got the gun. As Clint Eastwood said, the love of Jesus in your pretty blue eyes. And you have a lead on a drug investigation. Right. So my first exposure to kind of working undercover and getting involved with the entire drug scene was I was in a bar one time. And we got there early. For, oh, I'm shocked. You were in a bar? Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, we got there early, you know, nine o'clock and, uh, you know, we had a few drinks. They were sitting there and then all of a sudden this uh, young blonde girl comes over and starts talking to me and we have a drink. And then, uh, as the conversation got a little bit further, she asked me if I was interested in buying, you know, methamphetamine or any other kind of drugs. And, you know, I played along at that point since, you know, I was a few weeks out of the Academy of that. I was a seasoned <laughs> undercover narc right. at that point. With four hours of firearm training. <laughs> and, and, no, and, no, and no training in undercover or drugs, right? So, um, so I was like, yeah, I'll just play along and see where this goes, you know, have a little fun with it. And, uh, you know, we talked about uh, you know, methamphetamine. We talked about price. We talked about how much product and, you know, so we exchanged phone numbers and I went back to the precinct the next day and I met with some of the, the real narcs that were there and I told them what had transpired. And they said, hey, let's play this thing out. Why don't you give her a call, set something up and let's see uh, if it goes anywhere. So, you know, we I had a phone call with uh, with the girl and we agreed to uh, to meet on the boardwalk. And we talked about, you know, how much, you know, we would buy, uh, how much I would buy, how much was the price. So I had an undercover meeting with her on the boardwalk. And for one reason or another, the, the deal didn't go that day. And uh, I was asking for more drugs than she was able to supply at that point in time. So the negotiations kind of broke off at that point. But at least I got to be in on, on the planning of the operation with the, with the real narcs, there, the real detectives with the Wildwood PD. I got to, uh, you know, get the buy money and everything. So I had that with me. Oh, yeah. Um, 
So, uh, and you know, I got wired up. And so I got to see how that whole thing played out, you know, and I, and I thought, you know, this is, even though the deal didn't go that day, I thought, Hey, this is, this is pretty neat. This is something that I might be interested in. And then I started to, to look at different, you know, careers, maybe in DEA or FBI or something like that. But, uh, as I later found out the deal didn't go that day, but, uh, Later on, some of this girl's uh, people in the organization got taken down with quite a bit of meth. So uh, they were the real deal. And that was a good experience for me to really get exposed to that, uh, that undercover uh, life and, and, and dealing with uh, negotiating with somebody about that. How much weight were you talking to her about purchasing? We were talking at least a couple ounces at that point in time. And she could do that or she couldn't do it? Well, she didn't have the capacity to do it at that time. She had to go back to her people. I mean, she was just, you know, she wasn't the main person and obviously in this organization. She was more like a party girl dispenser, you know, just whatever, you know, just the, the hits, Make you know, for trust. partying that night, right? Yeah, and I'm sure that she was one of those people that, you know, hung out at the bar, supplied to, you know, drugs to people at the bar. And, and in, in this instance, we were asking for a little bit more than she could come up with it at that point in time. So, uh it didn't end up going that day, but it really exposed me to, you know, what that life was about. Mm -hmm. It's exciting, isn't it? Oh, it was, it was great. I thought it was like the greatest thing in the world at that point. And then you thought you were Don Johnson. Well, I did not at that point, but, uh, <laughs> or any point really, but, uh, it got me looking into, you know, DEA at that point. So I started to research it and I thought, you know, Hey, this might be a good career path for me. Man, you could have had Jersey Shore Vice instead of Miami Vice. Yeah, man, Vice. You, could have, you could have been up there with Snooky and Mike the Situation Sorrentino, you know, taking down people with excessive gold chains. Right. Uh, and guys, <laughs> fat guys and thongs walking the beach that should never be allowed on the Jersey Shore, you know. Um, but anyway, but that kind of led to you. Uh, so you did that, but you eventually ended up coming. Uh, you came down to Virginia Beach. You had relatives down there. So how did your journey go from uh, up in New Jersey, you know, in Pennsylvania, you know, all the way down here? So I did that while I was summer police officer gig for another two years. And then after I graduated college, you know, I had talked to some of my cousins down in Virginia Beach and they were like, hey, man, why don't you come down to uh, to Virginia Beach? We know you like to surf and hang out on the beach, but, you know, come down here and check out the PD. So I was like, all right. So I went down and I went through a whole battery of of testing over a three day span or so. And I ended up getting hired by the Virginia Beach Police Department in 1986. Yeah, after three days? After about three or four days, right. So they went, they did a barrage of testing during that three-day span. So I did the written test. I did the oral interview. Probably a physical agility test of some I, kind. I, I did a polygraph test, which to my surprise, I passed. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Why are you surprised you passed? I don't know. My checkered passed. But, um, okay. Oh, no, no, no. No, this is, I feel like an episode of Dr. Phil. You just opened Pandora's no, no, box. No, no, no reason. It's just that I always, you know, I never was really a firm believer in the polygraph test. So I, I just thought going into that, I, I wasn't going to pass it for one reason nice or another. Up. But, uh, nice no, cover I mean, That's up. the truth. That's, that's the honest truth. And, uh, and I swear I, to God, I swear to God, it's the honest truth. I've heard that before. Go ahead. Right. And then I had the medical and I think that was about it over that two or three day span. So I went back home and then I got a call the following week that said, hey, you, you passed everything, you're hired. Well, how did they do a background in that short of time? Is it because your prior, you know, work up there at Wildwood, you know, doing the summer stuff? I mean, that seems like an awful short amount of time from flash to bang. Very, very short amount of time. And I think back then, 
when they have those hiring barrages where they really need a lot of applicants to hire quickly that, you know, they just, they rely on the back, uh, the polygraph test and they do criminal checks and they do a, a brief, brief background check as best they can. And then they hired a whole slew of people in a very quick, uh, very short amount of time. Well, did you apply with anybody before Virginia Beach, PD? I applied to DEA right at about the same time as Virginia Beach. And, and what was going on with DEA back then? Well, with DEA, I, I did the uh, I sent everything in the initial application and everything, and I, I a few months later I got a letter in the mail that said, "Well, we're sorry to inform you, but you do not meet the uh, initial qualifications to become a DEA agent," which I thought was pretty funny because you had to be 21 years old, a U.S. citizen, and see out of both eyes, which were pretty much the minimum qualifications. So. I was like, wait a minute, you know, and I had to have a driver's license, I think, very, the basic stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, I said, wait a minute, I think, you know, you guys made a mistake. I, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen. I, you know, was born in the U.S. and I'm 21 years old. I have a driver's license and I have 20, well, I forget what the standard was, 20, 20 or 20, 40, and yeah. whatever it was. And, and you uh, had a college degree. Had a college degree, and you know, all the, and they had and you the had GPA. a math case that you successfully worked undercover. And, and I put a go. footnote on my letter saying, "Hey, man, I worked undercover." At the I worked Jersey undercover. Shore. Do you know there who you I am? So they, they, you know, that took a bit of time, and then they came back and said, "Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. We're sorry. We, we made an error in your application." So. <laughs> That delayed me. Oh, that was Murphy's application they rejected because it took so, him two years to get hired. Well, they probably thought I was him, and that's why I got rejected. So. <laughs> hey, I did get rejected the first time. I used to have uh, bleeding ulcers, and they kicked me out for that. I had to go through a battery test to prove I didn't have them anymore. So that, that got resolved after a few months, and then you know it, it started the clock over again for me. But you were on Virginia Beach PD at this time, right? So you started. So walk us through, you know, the, the, how many people did they hire? How many was in your cohort, you know, your class that they brought on at that time? In my academy class, there were probably a good 40 to 50 people, I think, That's at that time. That's a lot for, and that was just Virginia Beach only? That was Virginia Beach, but Virginia Beach was a pretty big department at that time. And um, I want to say, I hope I'm not mistaken in the number, but I want to say back then they had about 600 maybe sworn officers. But that's still a lot to put through the academy at one time, you know, 40 to 50. Uh, how yeah. many made it out of the academy? I think the majority of them. There were about three or four maybe that didn't make it through, if I recall correctly. But uh, most of us made it through. So what was life on the streets like? So you get out of the academy. I mean, you, 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 most people go through a training phase. So you're assigned to a field training officer. So what's life What's life on the rough city streets of Virginia Beach like compared to Wildwood, you know, where you partied all the time and stayed out till five or six in the morning? Well, depending <laughs> on what section you worked in in Virginia Beach, it could have been very similar because Virginia Beach has a lot of shoreline there. So yeah. and they have a lot of bars and it's kind of, you know, the same rowdy activity. But Virginia Beach is a much, much bigger city. It's a very big city. And uh, so I was put out with, as you know, most people are and back then and still are with an FTO. And I think I was with Which the is what? field training officer. And I was with him for, I forget how long the program was, maybe two or three months. But I got kicked loose a little bit early because I had that prior experience of Wildwood, which I thought was, you know, very beneficial. And uh, my FTO was a guy by the name of J.R. Johnson. He was an excellent cop. Taught me a lot of stuff. Um, just, you know going on domestics and uh, 
and investigative stuff and just a very good all around police officer and a good person, good friend of mine. Um, so I did Virginia beach have any seasonal police officers like they did in Wildwood? They did not. Okay. They did not. So, what part of Virginia Beach? Because so the whole county is one metropolitan government. There, I used to live there. And uh, what part of Virginia Beach did you start up on patrol? I was in the Lake Edward section, which was up by off of Shore Drive, which kind of bordered Norfolk. Yeah. At the time, so I was as far away from the beach as you could possibly get <laughs> from the from the ocean front. I should say I wasn't very far from. Uh, the military base and Chesapeake Beach. That's because they heard about your escapades in Wildwood at the beach. Probably they wanted to keep me, you know. <laughs> and and they saw your dodgy results on the polygraph too. So they're going, oh, he just barely passed this one. But right. I passed. Oh, I mean, yeah, I passed. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, I lurked in that. It was uh, Zone Three Sixteen that I remember, and it was in the Lake Edward area. Sounds like a Bible verse, you know, Zone Three Sixteen. You know, it does. Yeah, as I. Enter the fat shadow of the valley of death. I'm the toughest dude on the block because I got blonde hair. You know what? I, and I I was a railroad cop in Norfolk, but I lived out in, off Alaskan Road there in Virginia Beach. Oh, sure. Yeah, I know that's that. And uh, Virginia Beach PD had a great reputation. I mean, that's where everybody wanted to go work. I think you guys paid more than anybody else in the entire Tidewater area there. They, they paid well. Um, they were very professional. We had excellent equipment. Uh, you know, they had nine millimeters at the time. We had the KDTs with the computers in the in the car, in the police car. So we were able to run tags and and, and different stuff. So yeah, one of the first in car in car basically terminals, you know, uh, keyboard. Uh, yeah, because that 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 wasn't wasn't exactly uh, very well known at that time. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, eighty six to eighty. Help! I was a trooper during that time. I didn't even have a handheld radio. I mean, well, that was Kansas, too. So we were a little behind the times. <laughs> they were still sending up smoke signals out there back then. <laughs> Damn, I would have killed to have an onboard computer to run my own tags. My dispatchers got pissed at me. You got another tag? My radio number was 150. They, I'd call 150 Garden City. Oh, my God, here we go again. You know, but uh, Yeah, but see, Morgan, you couldn't surf porn on your car computer. I mean, that probably wouldn't have done you any good. You haven't seen me try hard enough. <laughs> you can surf porn on anything if, the, if you, you are have a computer enough expert. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. No, it, but but go back to that. So you you hit the streets. Um, what was did they did you guys have permanent shifts or assigned shifts? So w- w- did you start off on midnights? You know where'd you we start had, out at? We had rotating shifts back then, so we'd work you know eight to four, and then a week later four to twelve, and then another week twelve oh. to eight, and then um, sometimes we would work the power shift, which was was my favorite shift. It was seven at night, three in the morning. So yeah, we but those tra- rotating shifts are killers. Yeah, it's I, I didn't mind it, though. I mean, I actually liked the, the I didn't like the day shift, you know, the eight to four because you were dealing with a lot of accidents and, you know, burglar alarms going off and stuff. So you, you didn't really get a lot of the uh, a lot of the action or anything. But uh, the night shift and especially that seven at night, the three in the morning shift was good. Oh, because, that's always fun. Yeah, that's when everything's happening. And you were everything was happening and you were more of a support shift. You know what I mean? So you know, the four to 12 people would, would handle the the majority of the calls and then the 12 to eight guys too. But, and you would be there more as a, as a support and backup, or if they were tied up, you would go to handle the call. So it was really, it was a fun shift. What was the most, uh, let's say find a good way for it. What was one of the worst calls you went on while you were down at Virginia beach? Let's do, let's, before we get into like, which one made you suck your shorts up through your, you know, your butt. But what what was one of the worst calls you probably went on down there at Virginia beach? The worst calls. Um, well, I had an incident right before I left to get on with DEA, and uh, 
my sergeant told me, he's like, look, we're going to put you with somebody before before you leave because we don't want you getting involved in, in anything or having them testify and come back from the academy or anything like that. And uh, <clears throat> we were just sitting outside of a 7-Eleven and we get the alert tone that comes over. Anytime you had an alert tone, uh, you know, you knew it was a, a major call. And it said, you know, the alert tone, uh, armed robbery. I think it was Kalman Broad or, or right there, 7-Eleven, armed robbery. I turn around, I look, 7-Eleven's right here. And then about two seconds later, boom, somebody comes running out of the uh, out of the 7-Eleven. And, of course, you know, you bail out of the car. We got in a foot pursuit. And it was probably one of the closest times I have to, you know, shooting someone in the line of duty as a police officer. The uh, After a good foot pursuit, the individual basically stopped and turned around and pulled something out of his waistband and kind of turned at me like this. And I just saw a, a shiny object. And, you know, I was almost at that point, I noticed it was a knife, but it was a like this huge knife where you can grip it and had the spikes coming out of it. <laughs> I thought, oh, gee, holy shit. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I lowered my weapon and then he started ch- running again. And by that time, the cavalry had come in and we, we were able to tackle him and uh, put him under arrest. But it was, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty hairy incident at the time. And and you were, I mean, it's one of those things too. It's one thing to get the alert tone, but it's one of those things to turn around and go, <laughs> you know, there it is right there. I got the guy. Now you must've been in good shape or he was in bad shape. So which one was it? I mean, if you're able to chase, how far did you guys go on this foot chase? Oh, uh, it was probably a good, uh, maybe 200 yards through a couple over fences, through a few yards down wow. onto the street. Yeah. So now the statute of limitations has run out on that. Did you have to open a can of whoop ass on him? Um, not that I recall. Not that I recall. <laughs> not that <laughs> I recall, <laughs> Senator. <laughs> I have no independent recollection of the events that transpired on the above date. You've been down this road before. <laughs> Chris, what we need you to do is just take this strap and put it around your chest. Hold your fingers out. We're just going to hook you up to a little machine here. <laughs> but there was there was so much force there so quickly that it, it I mean. Yeah, but he, you know, but somebody with a knife is that you would rather use, and you do, you have to use overwhelming force to stop them from getting back up and doing it. And it, it's been known to happen. Some people do get injured, but the, hey, what, what's the alternative? You put three or four holes in the guy and he right. dies, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. And I think at that point too, when he, you know, he saw three or four different police cars coming down the street and five or six officers, you know, coming there, he, he really had no out at that point. So, I mean, he's... He made the smart move not to resist. And your brass is going, Faisal, we told you not to get yourself involved in shit. <laughs> you were, exactly. I was exactly. just sitting there. I wasn't doing anything. The boss. <laughs> exactly the, what uh, they wanted to try to avoid uh, happened. And I understand that, too. It's You, you know how it is. To, before you leave, you, you don't you don't want to have to come back for trial or, no. or anything like that. So they were just kind of looking out for me at that point. Well, did you have to come back for trial on this one since this one was a robbery and a use of force? And Did you not. Know, did not. Well, so you had already been notified by DEA that, that you'd been offered the position, right? No, not at that point. So another interesting incident would happen is uh, I'm driving again in the Lake Edwards section, and I get the alert tone, doo 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 doo, and it said, you, you know, that pretty well, yeah. Uh, it said <laughs> DEA needs assistance. So I, the holy shit, do they what? need an undercover investigator? Because I'm available. Well, when as a, as an alert tone that went out, I thought it was. You know, it was either a shooting or shooting, yeah. something had gone bad. So I drive 100 miles an hour trying to get there, and I almost got in, a, in an accident. And I roll into the—it was actually at a hotel. 
So I roll into the hotel, my lights and siren are blaring. And I, you know, it's like that eerie feeling where you're looking around and you're like, it doesn't look like there's anything going on here. And uh, I look up on the balcony and I see a bunch of other Virginia Beach cops there. And I get out of the car and I'm like, what's going on? They go, oh, you know, DEA, sir, you know, arrested some people in the hotel room. They need help transporting the prisoners back to, to the office. I said, well, why did that, <laughs> that come was out as a, a code to <laughs> alert tone call? I almost killed myself getting here. And they're like, I, I don't know. But, you know, so. And then uh, my old FTO happened to be there, too. And he, he, two of the Virginia Beach cops that were prior Virginia Beach cops now were hired by DEA. And they were working for DEA and they were on the scene. So uh, my FTO knew them and he goes, hey, this guy's going to be working for you soon. And they're like, what are you talking about? He says, well, hey, he's just waiting to get hired. He's, he's done everything. He's just waiting to take his final PT test and he's going to get hired by DEA. So uh, I never forget, Wilbur Latson was the recruiter and he was there at the time. And he goes, is that true? And I said, yeah, I've just been waiting for a while to take my PT test. So he said, okay, here's my card. Call me Monday morning. And we'll schedule a time for you to come in and take your PT test. <laughs> so meaning, okay. meaning they had no clue, meaning they had no clue. It was one of those things that got bogged down in the system, you know, with the bureaucracy and just um, and, you know, I, I made the phone call and I went in, I did my PT test. And a short time later in, in March of 1988, I got the call and. And I, I resigned from the Virginia Beach PD and then got hired by DEA. Isn't it amazing how little reminder like, oh, shit, I knew I was supposed to do something. I was supposed to call that guy about a PT test. Good thing you were available for that, you know, alert tone and that code two response. Good thing you hauled ass over there. Exactly. And I'm sure that that certainly expedited my, my process a little bit, because if not, it would probably would have been a few more months before they got around to... Uh, to uh, giving me the test. See, Murph, that's all you had to do was respond to a call where DA needed help. Instead, what does Murph do, Chris? He drives from frickin' crusty bumpkin West Virginia all the way into D.C. to go meet the recruiter to say WTF over. Twice. You, twice. Where's my application? <laughs> See, Murph, Chris has just figured out the easy way. Just go to one call, say, hey, I need to take a test, and the guy schedules it. Do you remember, Chris, do you remember Charlie West? Sure, of WDO. Of yeah. He was the recruiter back then, and I, I cold called him at the WDO, drove all the way up to D.C., six and a half hours. Wow. And he's like, do we have an appointment? And I said, no. And he's like, so you drove all the way up here just on a chance that I'd be here? So, I, you know, I didn't know it was you, but okay. We should have got, you got points for that, though. Yeah, things moved forward immediately. Uh, Charlie was, uh, he did me right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Charlie was a yeah. good man. Yeah. Well, so you get the notice, um, you, you get your PT test done and everything, right? And then the eventual day comes in, DEA says, hey, we're going to take a chance on you. So when was that? That was, I started the, well, I got the notification about March 1st of 1988. And I put my, you know, I put my paper, my two-week notice in at Virginia Beach. And uh, I headed off to the academy, DEA academy, two weeks later. So you got two weeks notice? I did. I got a call like on a Wednesday. Can you start the academy on Monday? No yeah. hesitation. Damn right, I'll be there. <laughs> and, 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 and I've heard of a, several people that that happened to, and uh, I guess it. You know, they have people slotted for the class, and some people back out, and then they go down the list and see who's available. But uh, yeah, I had a good two weeks. Two weeks notice. 
Nice. Good. So, but the nice thing too is you didn't have to go that far, right? Because you're in Virginia Beach and you guys did your academy at Quantico, right? That's right. So I was from where I lived, I lived on Chicks Beach in Virginia Beach. So uh, it was probably a good like two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes for me to get to Quantico. So it wasn't far at all. Not bad. Well, let's talk about the academy because as with everybody who goes, who seems to go to DEA Academy, there always is something that happens to them. And you were actually doing pretty good until one night, Chris. You got curfew. a little freedom. Man. <laughs> you, you were doing good until this one episode, and then you blew it. You guys know everything. Um, so we were confined to the base for, I, I want to say, the first six weeks that we were there. We couldn't leave the base. And finally, we were given our, our shore leave, so to say. And since I lived two and a half hours away, pretty much in Virginia Beach, I had a vehicle. And we said, hey, let's not let this, you know, weekend go to waste so that we can go out and, you know, just at least just leave the base. So one of the my academy mates, uh, we went down to Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, and we were responsible. We had a few drinks, but not... Not many. I may have had one or two because I was driving. That's what they all say. No, I, 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 no it's the truth because I wasn't going to jeopardize, you know, anything with with DEA or, you know, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I was a cop before that. So, I, you know, I, I knew and I was responsible enough to realize, hey, don't don't blow this. So um, so we went out, we had dinner and we went to a couple of the, the, the bars there. And, and again, it was, you know, I was a designated driver, so I. I had one or two. I wasn't, you know, nothing at all crazy. And I said, hey, it's about time to go. We got to get back because we had a 12 o'clock curfew that night. And I said, I don't want to be late. So, you know, we get back on our 95 and we're heading down the road. And sure enough, I look in my mirror and I'm getting I'm getting lit up. I said, you got to be kidding me. So I, I get pulled over on the side of the road and, you know, license and registration. And. The trooper's like, you know, where are you coming from? You know, I said, uh, Old Town, Alexandria. Where are you headed to? Uh, I was glad to get that in because at least, you know, I could kind of expand on it. I go, oh, I'm going back to Quantico, Virginia. I'm in the DEA Academy. He's like, oh, is that right? Yeah. I said, yeah, it's prior Virginia Beach. Ooh, he had a couple little questions. I said, yeah, I used to work at Virginia Beach PD. He goes, oh, really? Well, you got to know what this is then. And I look at it and I was like... <laughs> Yeah, I know what that is. It was an alpha sensor. It was one of those handheld DUI breathalyzer machines. So he goes, you want to step out of the car, please? I was like, whoa. I was like, wow, this is just going downhill fast. Wow, right? things have escalated quickly, as Ron Burgundy <laughs> right, would say. Real quick. And, what, uh, what did he pull you for initially? I was speeding. I, but I mean, I wasn't going. I couldn't have been going more than five over the speed limit. I was watching my speed. I wasn't going fast. Yeah. But I guess I was going fast enough for him to be able to pull me over. And... Um, so I, as I'm walking back to the car, I noticed that there's another officer there in the vehicle with him. So I immediately thought to myself, oh, this might be like a, an FTO training another, another state trooper. So uh, he puts me in the back of the police car, makes me blow into the alpha sensor. And uh, I did it twice. Of course, it was what well, below the legal limit because I was, you know, I was nowhere near that. And um, he kind of gives me the little lecture you know, hey, you know, you shouldn't. I was like, dude, I had, you know, two beers over a, you know, six hour period. It's, you know, one with dinner, not a big deal. So anyway, I was like, look, I know what he's doing and he's right. You know, you shouldn't be 
drinking and driving. And uh, so he kind of kicks me in the ass and sends me on my way. And But now I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to be late. I'm going to have to speed up now again to get back to Quantico on time and not be late for my 12 o'clock curfew. So well, I was like, and you, you remember, you don't speed on the Marine Corps base because those Marine cops are right. They don't give a shit. Not at there. all. But now I'm trying to speed on 95 to make up a little <laughs> bit of time. And I'm thinking, oh, geez, I'll probably get pulled over again. I got it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to speed limit. <laughs> so, you know, we walk into the FBI Academy because back then it was the FBI Academy. There was no DEA Academy. And, uh, I look over and one of the class coordinators or counselors from the other class was there. And, you know, I walk through and I turn and I see him kind of just does one of these, looks at his watch, gives looks at me. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm screwed. Me and my, Go pack my, my bags. Me and my partner are screwed. So I wait till, you know, Monday and I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to get summoned by who knows who. To have to explain myself, and I'm you know falling on the sword. I'm already thinking of all these stories I'm gonna say, and nothing really happened. So I was like, hmm, well maybe I'll wait. Something somebody's tied up or somebody called in sick. It's probably coming the next day or two. Nothing, nothing ever happened. You know, and that's the worst part is sitting there on pins and needles, going, "Is it today? Is today right. the day?" The anticipation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost better that you say like you know just. Whatever's going to happen, just give it to me. Like you always say, anticipation of an event is always worse than the event itself. Yeah. You know, and it was the same there. So finally, after a few days, I went up to the uh, to the coordinator, the counselor, whatever he was at that point, and I said, uh, "Hey, uh, what's the deal?" He's like, "What do you mean, what's the deal?" I go, "You know, you violated curfew because back then, maybe you had to write memos and you had to do this, and it was yeah, you know, and." he basically said, he goes, hey, look, you know, I've seen you guys in class. You do pretty well. I can tell you got your, your shit together and kind of don't worry about it thing. And I was like, hey, you know what? Uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, I, won't, I won't prove you wrong kind of thing. So uh, afterwards, I graduated from the academy and I went down to Miami. And sure enough, that same counselor coordinator had been promoted. He was a group supervisor in another group right next to uh, where I was. I was in group four. And we ended up doing a lot of stuff with his group. You know how Steve back in the day, hey, we need help on surveillance or we need help with this. And, you know, I would always go over and help them. And uh, we actually became pretty good friends at that point. And uh, we worked in headquarters together. And, you know, uh, he made a lot of calls for me to, for promotions and to get down to Bogota and stuff. So, so that one little event where, I, you know, I thought that I was really going to get jammed up, really turned into kind of a, a career long relationship with, with this individual. And, you know, we played golf together. We worked in, uh, in headquarters together too. So it was, who, uh, who was it? It was Gary Wade. Oh yeah. Gary fellow West Virginian, by the way. Tell you a very good man. And, uh, he did a lot of stuff for me throughout my career, just little things, but think little things that go a long way. Well, you know, when 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 Javier and I were in Miami, or we were in Bogota, uh, looking for Pablo, Gary ran his group was the response group for South America. So Gary was the kind of guy, Morgan. You could call him at three a.m. He'd have the troops out at three thirty. I mean, he was he was there. He was there every freaking time. Absolutely. I don't have quite the same story, but I did go to a two week DEA school that 
in Grand Island, Nebraska, that was supposed to have a curfew at midnight. And of course, we were all cops from different areas. We ignored that, but that's because we had somebody who didn't like to go out and drink. So we always snuck in their uh, window of their room that was on the ground floor. <laughs> but I remember to this day, Jeez. his name was Bill Stopcotty, and we used to call him Bill Stuckpotty. And he would be sitting there with his clipboard, you know, looking to take attendance, you know, at 12 at midnight, he would like go down the room. And we're like, dude, I'm number one. I'm from Kansas. I'm not even from Nebraska. This is a training center. I'm here for a course. Now we have rules. And so oh, we proceeded to violate those rules many, many times. Those are just suggestions anyway. <laughs> just, just kind of, you know, stay between the lines. But yeah, but we didn't do, I mean, we didn't go out like drink and drive, but yeah, we did, we did watch a couple bar fights, you know, and we stayed the hell out of the way. Cause it's like, dude, we're in a different state. I'm not getting, I didn't see anything, didn't see anything. So, Hey, but you are in now in Miami real quick though. How did you get to Miami? What was your, was that your first choice? Did you get some choices? Uh, you know, where did you think you were going versus where did you go? Well, back then, and they change it all the time, but back then you got to put in a list of top five places that you wanted to go. And uh, I was always very adamant from day one in the, in the academy, and I always tell everybody, I want to go somewhere where it's hot, I can't stand cold weather, and I want to go where I'm going to be able to learn the job quick, be exposed to significant cases, be able to do work, and learn the job as quickly as I can so I could become the best agent that I could. And... You know, and this was in the Miami Vice days, too. So I thought, really, the place for me to go is South Florida because mm -hmm. I love the warm weather. I like the beach. Um, and I that, you know, and you know how it was, Steve, back then. Coke was falling out of the sky Absolutely. back in the 80s. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I could I'm sure I could learn a job there. Super quick because on the beaches. There's so much stuff going on. So I used uh, to tell people, Chris, hey, if you can't make a drug case in South Florida, <laughs> you need to get another occupation. <laughs> exactly. And it was a great decision because from day one, it was you, you, we were busy. You were exposed to all different kind of cases and you really did get to learn the job super fast. You know, and some of the guys, you know, in your academy, for lack of a better word, you know, go to Kansas and you're, you're not exposed to that quality. Hey, 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 we had we had major drug traffic trafficking going on through there. Operation Pipeline came out of right. uh, Epic. Yeah, we, that was through Kansas. Ass, see if he's got any cocaine up in there. But just the the variety <laughs> of different you work smuggling cases. You can work, you know, cocaine by bus. There was heroin there. There was crack there. You there, we had labs there back at the time. So you really got exposed to a whole a, a lot of different types of of investigation. So I thought that that's the only place for me. And uh, you know, and if I get New York, I'm going to quit because I can't stand cold weather. And I don't want to go there. So that was always the running joke when I was there. Like, dude, you're going to New York. I'm like, no, man, I, I got to have well, a You beach. could have met Derek Maltz up there and gone out to lunch with him, you know? I, I've had lunch with Derek many times. He, <laughs> when he was in uh, SOD and I was in Columbia and he was, uh, Derek is a... He's a, an icon. He's, he, he is. He's, uh, he's a great man and he's a great agent and he's a great front man for DEA for what he does. He's always out front you know, pushing DEA just like he did when he was on the job. So he's well, a I great bet you friend. never got cocaine off of a John Deere 4450 tractor, have you? Huh? No. Huh? <laughs> okay. I got one on you then. <laughs> Can't say okay, that yes, I you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Score. Okay, so you know the thing though with Derek, when you go out to eat with him, just don't sit directly oh, in front. No, of he's him. always he can't. He's, 
Because he talks as he eats. He These does. face shields that they use for COVID have a secondary purpose. It's called the malt shield. There um, you go. But what a passionate guy, you know. And oh, he, he does. He loves what he does, and he's, he was He's got as much at energy at his age today as he did 30 years ago. True. Oh, yeah. Very had true. slowed down yeah. a bit. Yeah. So my, my five choices were Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm, Tampa, and Fort Myers. So I think <laughs> I think the the people got the hint that I wanted to go to South Florida, and I ended up with my number one choice, which was Miami. Could have been worse. You could have got Minneapolis. Yeah. So. Oh, geez. Hey, well, that's, that was Michelle Linhart. That was that episode. So, um, but, you know, even though you're in Florida and all this stuff is going on, you spend a lot of time later on in your career um, in Columbia, you know, um, in um, uh, countries obviously outside the U.S. What was it about Columbia or about down there that got you so fascinated that you ended up spending, I mean, how many years, we'll get into this later, but how many years total did you end up spending like in Columbia or in, uh, in other Latin American countries? I spent a total of 12 plus years in Columbia. Wow. So I've been told I have the longest serving DEA agent in Columbia, 12 years, over 12 years. And that was because of the money, right? No, it was mainly because of the, <laughs> because of the work. I mean, yeah. and that all came about from working in Miami, you know, working on, mm-hmm. you know, targeting people in the Cali cartel, targeting people in the Medellin cartel, working on transportation cases. And, you know, back then, every everything was coming out of Columbia. So every, all roads led to Columbia. All, uh, exactly. All roads led to Columbia. So uh, any any significant case you did had a Colombian connection to it. So it was only natural that the cases you worked and the people that you arrested and the more cases you made, it was it was mainly centered on on Columbia. And that was when Colombian heroin was becoming popular as well. So it wasn't just Coke. There, it was, it was started a little bit later, but there was a lot of heroin coming in from uh, West Africa, from Nigeria, Ghana, in, in those areas, Ivory Coast. And we had a couple of those heroin cases too in Miami. So yeah, you had the whole plethora of, of drug investigations while you were in Miami. So let's start setting the stage then. What, when did it start piquing your interest? When was the first time you remember saying... You know, at what point did you apply to say, I want to go to Columbia? Was there a particular case or was it just an accumulation of things that finally said, hey, I got to get down to Columbia? I think it was several things, you know, and just like the decision to go to Miami, you know, my thought process at the time was, you know, hey, if I want to be a real DEA agent, I need to go to Miami. And then after a few years there, I said, well, you know, if I really want to be a DEA agent, I need to go to Columbia because that was basically the center of the universe for drug trafficking back then. So, you know, after working a lot of transportation cases and, and dealing with some of the, you know, the peripheral members of Cali and the Medellin cartel, it was, I thought for me, it was not only because I wanted to go, but it was kind of that, like that natural progression to go like, Hey, let's go to, you might as well now go after the biggest and the baddest and be the real DE agent, go down to Columbia and get exposed to, uh, to that. And you're probably thinking, well, hell, they took Murph. They'll take anybody. Exactly what I said. I go, <laughs> you know, if, if Payne and Murphy can get to Columbia, man, I surely can. Yeah, but can you go down to Columbia and have Pablo turn himself in three days later, which Murph claims total credit for? Damn right. Hey, right place, right time. You know? <laughs> Better even a blind squirrel, Even a blind squirrel finds a nut, Murph. Just remember that saying. That's right. Hey, but that was a big nut. That's right. That was a so, big nut. So when I... I finally got my 13. I think it was in. So explain to folks, too, when you say 13, uh, there's a lot of folks not familiar with the GS, you know, the government service stuff. So as you progress up, what what level were you at when you got hired and what does it mean to get to a 13? 
So I got hired back then, as a lot of people did, uh, even with prior law enforcement experience, I got hired as a GS7, which is like the lowest entry level that they'll bring you on at. Um, so then your natural progression as an agent would be GS7 to GS9 after a year, and then a year 9 to GS11, and then after a year, GS11 and GS12. And then once you got to GS-12, and you'll remember this, Steve, from being in Miami, it was pretty competitive and it was hard to get your GS-13. You had to wait at least three years in grade. You had to have, you know... Uh, and a 13 is more of a supervisory or a first-line supervisory position or just as like a, more of a senior agent position? It's like it's a senior special agent position and it's one level below becoming a supervisor. So, so it's like a journeyman level. Journeyman level, right. And a supervisory level in DEA is a GS-14. So GS-13 is right below that. So um, I had, you know, I had some good investigations that I had worked while I was in Miami. And I put in for my promotion to GS-13 after one year, uh, which I got. So I was a GS-13, I think in, man, I can't no, remember. Wait a minute. Don't go any further. There. So go you ahead. got your 13 after one year as a 12? Uh, one year as a 12, right. So you had to have some significant cases to get that. I had, yeah, I had, I had a couple of good cases that I worked with. with My partners back then were Alex Dominguez and mm -hmm. um, Dave Gaddis. Good guys. Wow. Yeah. And uh, AD Wright, too. We worked a lot with AD. You know, mm -hmm. Dave had uh, left. He had gone to Snowcap. And myself and Alex were partners for a while. And we worked on a lot of pretty significant transportation cases coming out of Columbia, boat cases, you know, maritime investigations where we had, we had freighters, we had sources, we had, we had a really good undercover house in the Florida Keys. We had a really good operation set up. And, uh, so working with those guys, I was able to get my, my 13 after, after one year. Yeah. Those are some super guys. Alex is one of the funniest people you ever meet, Morgan. He will make you just pee in your pants. He's so funny. Alex is great. He's <laughs> and he hasn't changed it. I've only peed my pants one time, and that was 16 years old. I got caught drag racing. We've had this discussion, Murph. So <laughs> <laughs> he's just a funny man. He, you know, he's actually doing some comedy now. He he sent me because uh, I still talk to him. Well, Wait a minute, stand up DEA. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, he's been long retired, but. I still talk to Dave and, and Alex, and uh, he sent me, I don't know if it was like a YouTube video or it was just like a video from a phone, I can't remember, where he did like a, like a five-minute uh, stand-up stand in yeah. one of these you know, places. Like an improv place. Like an improv, right. I was trying to think of the word, exactly. Yeah. It was actually pretty funny. So yeah, Alex is funny. He's hilarious. He really is. So, but, but you're down there and you're seeing this come up, like say it's a collection of things. Um, what What... Was there an opening or did you decide, hey, I'm going to go for it? I, I want to go to Bogota, which obviously means at some point you got to learn Spanish. So, you know, when did that happen? So working with Alex and, you know, we had a lot of informants back then that only spoke Spanish and kind of by like osmosis and listening to Alice and listening to some of the sources that I was able to pick up a little bit. I was by no means, you know fluent or I, I could understand more than I could speak, but I had a little bit of a general understanding of, of Spanish. So, um, but when you put in and you get selected, they send you to language school. So I was able to go to language school in, in South Florida. Oh, cool. I had to go to DC. Yeah. Was there any, do they speak any kind of Spanish in South Florida? I thought that I didn't know that was the, no, 
more, I think more people spoke Spanish in South Florida than they did English. So yeah, but but also, but there was a mix too of down there too, obviously, obviously Cuban. So did you get the mix of the Cuban uh, as well as Spanish and, and, and everything else? Right. Right. So Alex Alex Dominguez was Cuban. A lot of the informants that we had at the time were were Cuban or Colombian. So I kind of got exposed to both, you know, both accents. And uh, uh, like I said, I was able to understand a lot more than than I could speak. But uh, I, I thought that going to language school, I have a pretty good grasp on, on, you know, learning the language and it wouldn't, you know, I shouldn't have any problems is what was my initial, my initial feeling. So, uh, well, you said that was your initial feeling. Yeah. What was reality? <laughs> no, I, I didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't bad at all. I mean, uh, I learned Spanish in a much different way than they teach most people. I, I always had like a very good memory and, I, I just like in college, I wouldn't be able to study, you know, semesters worth of notes and one night and take tests. Oh, and, you were that guy. Oh, uh, I yeah. remember you in let's, college. Wouldn't show up to class up. except for the test. Okay. Let's just hang out. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> so, um, so I learned pretty much, which they tell you the first thing you can't learn, can't learn a language like that by memorization, but that's pretty much what I did. And I, uh, I had a funny story with language school too. I'll tell you in a minute. But what I would do basically in language school is every day is I would go home and you know you do the homework, but I would buy the newspaper and I would try to read the newspaper. And anytime I got to a word that I didn't know in the, in the article, I would write it down. So it would take me a couple hours at night and I would write all these words down and I would look them up and then write the meaning in English. And I would kind of, you know, now I didn't really know how to conjugate verbs or anything at then, but at least I had an idea of what the, Context what the word, was what the context yeah. was exactly in reading. So, um, did you watch any Spanish television too, or did you watch this? Because the soap operas, I'm telling you, that's that's a staple. Not really. I didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't really listen to to music either. But I just I had my routine, and I would get the paper, and I would do that, and I'd do the words, and I went about it that way. And uh, so they gave you tapes in language school. I don't know if you remember, Steve. They gave you like these cassette tapes, and they wanted you to to listen to them on, while you were driving back and forth to language school and stuff. So uh, we had a new student that came in to, uh, I went to Enlingua in Coral Gables and a new student came in and she was like, you know, the, the lady was a phenomenally nice lady who ran the school. She came in like with this very guilty face and she said, I am sorry to have to do this, but does anybody have, would anybody be willing to give up their, cassette tapes. We don't have any more tapes. And there's a new student. I'm like, oh yeah, they, they can have mine. She goes, oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you very much. Are you sure you don't need them? I'm like, no, no, I don't need them. I, I'm good. She's oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So I brought them in the next day and they were still wrapped in the plastic <laughs> that I had never even opened the, the plastic from the box. And I, I handed them to her and I, I thought she was going to like start crying. She was like, but you, you these aren't even them. opened. You didn't you use them. I was like, no, I, I didn't. I'm sorry. You know, and I felt so bad. But um, <laughs> so so for me, it was more of like looking at it, seeing it, and then I could remember it, not as much hearing it and remembering it. So that's now, did much. you have to do a proficiency test at the end for graduation? I mean, did they rate you? Uh... Yeah, everybody, everybody had to do that. Yeah. Before you can go overseas, you had to get a minimum score of two. So, yeah, I, we you took uh I think it was pretty long, Steve, too. You probably remember better than me. I think it was like an, it was at least like an hour long conversation on the phone 
you know, or at least in my place, it was in person because we were in a lingua. But and then they graded you on your uh, on your vocabulary, on your you know conjugation of verbs and everything like that. But you had to get that minimum score of two. And you know, there were some people that had to be extended because they couldn't reach that goal, and some people just could never get to that that uh, minimum level. And you had you had to have a two in speaking and a two in reading as well. That's correct. That was the minimum score. That was the minimum score. And ours, our verbal test was in person. So you just sat there and had a conversation for an hour. Right. They just asked you questions about, you know, tell me about this, tell me about that. And they, mm-hmm. and they forced you to speak in different tenses, you know. to So tell me, where did you live when you were a kid? You know, and you had to you know, think. Speak like, in past tense. And, yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, we know where you were as a kid. You know, you were scoring, you know. Chicks and meth on the beach, you know, in Wildwood <laughs> there. So that that was easy. So so you, you go through language school. Now it's start starting to set the stage for you going to Bogota. So when you go to you go to Bogota, right? Is when you're is where you were assigned the first time. Correct. What year do you arrive? I get there in mid ninety four, and I think I got there right after me and Dave Mitchell both got there right about as you were leaving, or right after you had left. See. Yeah, I left in June '94. Okay. So, did you guys cross paths then for a couple months? I don't remember seeing you and Dave there. I don't. I mean, we knew each other yeah. from Miami days, but but we did. You know, Javier was there when I got there. Javier actually picked me up from the airport. Uh, Joe Toff was still there, so I must have had just just missed you, Steve, when you were packing out, or we got there right after you did. Yeah, and I think Javier left in September '94. He did September, and I think Toff left in September too. So you're coming down there after the biggest case at that time, I'm basically around the world, you know, and that's the amazing thing too. In this day and age of social media, stuff like that would have been instantly known, instantly recognized. But back then, even though it was big, a lot of people didn't realize it for years. And, you know, Steve, even you talk about this, it's like, why would anybody want to make a movie about this? You know, it's 20 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, but going down there, how well, how aware were you of Pablo and what was going on with Murph and JP before you got there? I mean, because there's got to be thousands of operations going on at the same time. How well was this manhunt known to the rest of DEA before you got down there? No, oh, it was very well known. I mean, you know, Miami was basically an extension of Columbia. You had a huge majority of, of Colombian nationals living in South Florida. All of our cases were interrelated with Colombia. So uh, we would read the cables every day about what was going on in, in Colombia. And, uh, you know, a lot of the cases that I had worked had you know, tentacles reaching into the Medellin cartel or reaching into the Cali cartel. So you had sources that we were talking to all the time telling us about, you know, whether it was true or not, you know, what was going on in Colombia. You know, Pablo was doing this, the Cali guys are doing that. So uh, I think most people were aware in South Florida and Miami DEA as to what was going on with uh, with Pablo. And, and when I applied to go to Bogota, Pablo was still alive. So that was my goal was to, you know, go down there, work against Pablo or work against the Cali cartel. So that was one of the reasons why I, I wanted to go down there because I had applied, I think, in to go to Columbia in probably early to mid-93. DEA doesn't doesn't move that fast. So like I said, early early to mid-93 is when I think I initially applied to go to Columbia. But, uh, you know. Joe Toft had heard I had long hair, and uh, it took me a little bit of time to get down there. 
that's what I wanted to get into. Because you were in Miami. You definitely had the full Don Johnson going on. You had the long hair. Because you're working, you know, if you show up in short hair and a government haircut, everybody's going to go, oh, you're a Fed, right? So you're you're working the, you're looking the part. Tell us, before you had to cut your hair, describe Chris Feistel to us. What did you look like? If I'd run into you at a bar, what would you look like right before you had to do all of that? So I had, you know, I had the classic mullet, long hair. It was probably to the front. It was probably, you know, down to down to mid stomach, mid back, all the way down to my mid back. Um, I was. He had some long hair. I was. Yeah, I didn't get a cut for six years from the day I left the academy until the day. I had basically had to cut my hair to go to Columbia. <laughs> it was just about six years that I had had gone without a haircut. So I and my hair, because I was always out in the sun. I was either on the beach or I was out fishing with my friends. So I was always tan, really tan. And my hair was like real, light blonde. You could feel you know, from being in the sun. And I had three earrings. I had two in my right ear, one in my, two in my left ear, one in my right ear. I had to change, you know, and I... I had, you know, the outfit, the garb, and uh, that's, you know. Don it, Johns, that's Crockett and Tubbs. That's Tubbs. Yeah, that's Crockett so, coming down the beach there. And, uh, you know, I and everybody what was. What was your G-ride at that during that time? What were you driving? Well, I had a couple different ones, but at one point after a heroin case we did, we seized this very nice, and AD would let me drive it after a while, AD right. It was a, a navy blue four-door 300 Mercedes Benz with limo tinted windows. Nice. And the sunroof. Nice. So you can imagine, I got pulled over a lot in that car when I had the sunroof down and just, you know, cops were like, yeah, of course they profile you back then. And I got stopped all the time. But, um, so yeah, you had to look, I had to look and yeah, I did, did do a lot of undercover back then in Miami for different street level cases and boat cases and, you know, things like that. So, um, but yeah, Joe Toft got wind of, basically my appearance and you know the first couple of jobs I, I didn't I didn't get selected for and I'm like hey, what's going on I mean I you know I've done some good work I, I think I'm a pretty good agent why I'm not getting selected and they go dude it's your hair you look at you you, you know Toff's afraid you're gonna you know roll into the embassy with my flip-flops and my board shorts on and my surfboard <laughs> over my shoulder like, yeah hey, dude what's up hey Mr. Toft how's it going bro <laughs> surfs up in uh so where do you surf in bogota by the way yeah no no you don't no, exactly <laughs> and uh so you know what so i got i got pissed off one day i kept thinking about you know what this is bullshit you know i'm just not going down there because of my hair and you know i was pissed off so i went out at lunchtime one day and i got my hair cut kind of look just kind of like what i have now and i came back into the office and it was like people were like dude are you all right? Are you, like, did you cry when they cut off cut off all that hair? I mean, how did you take it emotionally? I was fine. I was like, you know what? I was ready for it because you know, after a while, it gets tangled. It's been in the salt water. I was like, you know what? I was over it anyway. So, I came back and people were like, "Dude, are you all right?" Like they thought I was going to climb a tower with a rifle or something and start shoot. I don't know. They, dude, you mentally you're okay. Like, dude, I want to go to Columbia. It's got my hair cut. It's a big deal. You know, people look at you like, who are you? Double takes and all that. So finally it got back down to Joe Toft that I had got my hair cut and I got selected on the next go around. So. <laughs> who, knew a a shame. 
a mullet was holding you back. And just for the record, I did not walk into the embassy with my surfboard and my flip-flops on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good to know. So you get down there and um, Murph had just departed. Javier picked you up for the airport. He's departing. When you found out, though, that Pablo had been killed in December... Before you get down there, did you think, dude, like my, my works, here we are. If we're talking, now I'm saying, dude, he's going to, <laughs> it's good, dude, and dude this. No. All right. I'm, let's get back to some English here, proper English. So, sir, um, sir, Chris, did you think that hey, there's nothing to do down here now? I mean, Pablo's been captured. It's killed. It's like, that's the end of it. Or had you been working on stuff thinking everybody's focused on this, but you guys are not looking over here. There's a lot of stuff going on over here. You know, what, what was that feeling like when you found out uh, Pablo had assumed room temperature? Well, I, you know, I was disappointed. I was like, oh, well, you know, Pablo's dead. I would have been nice to work on him. But hey, Cali's there. And a lot of the cases that I had been doing were against the Cali cartel, you know, the lower levels, the transportation cells and, and stuff like that. So I was just like, I just immediately shifted gears and said, all right, fine. You know, Pablo's down. Those guys, guys did a great job. Now we'll go after Cali because I was familiar with them. We had ex- been exposed to them. We had some good sources who were into those Cali guys. So I just thought immediately that was a perfect transition for me, probably even better for me because I did more work against, you know, Cali-related individuals than I did against Medellin. So I was more familiar with their operation, with their transportation coordinator, things like that. So I just immediately just shifted gears and said, well, well, there's still Cali, which I might as well focus on that. Did you feel that people in DEA, maybe other places, and not as a negative, but there was so much going on. I mean, obviously, Escobar was a big investment in the country, you know, made the news. Did you feel, though, that there wasn't enough attention being paid to Cali? Or did you think, hey, we're working it like we do anything else? Or had it kind of fallen off the radar because there was so much attention on Medellin and Pablo? It was completely under the radar because every resource for the in the US government as well as in the Colombian government was focused on going after Pablo. So Cali was kind of uh, like a side thought. No one was even dealing with him, which was one of the problems that when Pablo went down, we didn't have, when I say we, I mean the US government and DEA in general, didn't have that really good grasp on on the Cali guys because no one was really targeting them. And, and Steve, you can relate to that. Everybody in the embassy was basically working on on Medellin, no one was yeah. focused on doing anything else other than find Pablo. He's a narco terrorist. He's public enemy number one. All all hands on deck. Take him down one way or the other. And that was pretty much the mentality. And it was the same way in headquarters. That was the top priority for DEA worldwide. You know, so I say Derek, Gary Wade was our response group in Miami. And he never let us down, man. He, I'm sure his guys probably hated him for calling him at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. We tried not to do that too much, but, you know, when it, when stuff was going down, you had to get people out there. And, and uh, headquarters, you know, they were rolling out the red carpet for us for the most part. There was a little bit of, little bit of jealousy up there in headquarters because it was such a high priority, but, hey, it still worked. And yeah, you know exactly. how many people I've run into that have claimed that they were involved in the capture of Pablo Escobar? <laughs> you know how many I've run into? <laughs> I was going to say, and the same with Cali. I met so many people. Yeah, I worked on the Cali cartel. Oh, you did? Really? Oh, that's interesting. Well, speaking of that, I think there's something else that happens, too, because to me, collectively, I I call this the Winston Churchill syndrome. It's after World War II. Winston Churchill was a great leader. He got them through World War II, right? 
but they were so tired of war after that. He he got voted out of office. People were saying, we don't want any more war. I got the feeling as kind of the country was going, we can deal with Cali for a while. We don't care. We are just so thankful to be done with Pablo and Medellin. That kind of caved the opening too as well for Cali, didn't it? To grow and not get the scrutiny they would have got, except for the fact Pablo was sucking up all the oxygen in the room. Yeah. And there's, there's several other factors too that went into that. And, um, uh, which is one of the things I was going to say is that, uh, oh yeah, that, that's, this is, uh, it's kind of like a life lesson too, is that when you focus all of your resources or all of your time and energy on one problem and you kind of ignore other little problems, they fester, those little problems fester and they become big problems if you don't take care of them. And, uh, I think you've seen that over and over again, especially in Colombia, that everything's focused on Medellin. Cali explodes. And then we focus everything on Cali, then the North Valley explodes. And then we figure on North Valley, and then you have the AUC, the paramilitaries, and then the FARC, and then it's one thing or another. So it's kind of hard to, and back then we don't have all those resources. You can't spread those resources out and try and deal with every little problem that comes up. So everything was focused on, on Medellin and Pablo. And when Pablo went down, because of the relationship that the Cali cartel had, not only with the government, but with uh, the police, the Pepe's, everything else, there was a reluctance to kind of go after the Cali cartel because, hey, let's be honest, they had a hand in, in, in taking down Pablo by providing intel to the police, by funding the Pepe's, by doing other stuff. So, yeah, it was OK. Right. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's exactly right. And but, was, you know, also, they didn't declare war on, on the country of Colombia twice. Like Pablo did, right? That's yeah. right. They were much different, and they learned that by watching Pablo's, that they were very much under the radar, where Pablo's, you know, motto was threats, violence, intimidation, murder, assassination. You know, that was Pablo's weapon, the fear that he instilled on everybody. Cali's weapon was was the bribe. It was pay off the everybody we yeah. can. Let's buy senators. Let's buy congressmen. Let's buy the police. Let's buy the military. And you know what? While we're at it, let's buy the presidency. So set the stage for that, too, because they they get a nickname called the Gentleman of Cali, you know, and that's basically because exactly what you said. They, they, they dressed in business suits. You know, they were very disarming in terms of if you looked at them. And this is where uh, this is where now season three of Narcos starts. I mean, this is where your character, you know, in, in the series, but this is where you actually start. So this is when does when do you really get a good head of steam on this Cali investigation? When does it how long does it take or what does it take before people finally start going you guys, you got to take them serious like you did Pablo. He's They're different than Pablo, but trust me, at the end of the day, they're going to be just as dangerous or just as bad for the country as Pablo. Wh- what? How long did that take? What did it take? Well, it was, it was not any one event. It was an accumulation of things that happened, which, I mean, we, we can talk for days about this, but uh, I think the, re- the first real incident or event that happened that kind of opened people's eyes was a raid on Guillermo Palomari's office. And Guillermo Palomari was the lead accountant for the Cali cartel. And ironically, and we'll get back to this later on because it plays a major, major part in everything that goes on, is that Guillermo Palomari is Chilean. He's not Colombian. Okay. So there's no extradition at this time for Colombian nationals from Colombia to the United States, but there is extradition and deportation for non-Colombian citizens. So 
Palomari being Chilean um, and many other people too, ended up becoming liabilities for the Cali cartel. So to digress, Palomari's, when, when we first get to Cali, Dave Mitchell and I, we, we go to Cali and we establish liaison with the military as well as the police. And there had not been any DEA agents in Cali for quite some time due to the threat level and the, uh, the violence. So, well, in fact, you had a hard time getting permission to go there. Is that right? We, so the, the minute that I stepped foot in Columbia, you know, I'm on the phone with Joe Evans and other people in Miami who have good sources uh, telling me, hey, you know, you got to go check this place out. You got to go check this place out. My source just told me he met with Alberto here and another source told me this. So I'm like, hey, I, I need to get to Cali. I mean, I got to check this stuff out. And they're like, no, no one's allowed to go to Cali. What do you mean nobody's allowed to go to Cali? It's, well, how can you investigate the Cali cartel if you can't go to Cali? Those were ex my exact words. Like, <laughs> how am I supposed to get anything done if I can't go to Cali? You know, I've got stuff I got to do. And uh, they're like, well, it's too dangerous right now. And the threat level, because there had been, uh, there were two agents that were assigned to Cali before I got there. And uh, a source walked in with a photograph one time of both of them in Cali walking down some stairs. And he brought the photograph into DEA and, People looked at it and they're like, hey, man, just so you know, these are two DEA agents. And they were. And so it was perceived as kind of this, uh, like a perceived threat. Like, oh, geez, they're following DEA guys. They know who they are. No, knee-jerk reaction. DEA, we're famous for it, right? No one can go to Cali. It's too dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we got to get we got to get stuff done. So finally, we were, I don't know, probably in July or something, July, August, we were able to get to Cali. And... We were told establish liaison with the police and the military, develop good relations, you know, work with them, pass information and see what you can do. But we couldn't leave the base. We had to be back that same day. Couldn't stay overnight. It's like, you guys, you're handcuffing us. These were the ambassador's orders and we had to follow. This was a, you're talking about a military base in, in Cali, right? The military, the bloke, yeah, the military base in Cali and the police base which was, it, it was the bloke later, but back then it was just a police base. It was the Finca, we called it, because it was like a, like, a, like a ranch. So we were operating pretty much with our hands tied behind our back, not being able to get anything done. So, you know, I wasn't always one to follow the rules. So we and Dave and I ended up violating a lot what, of the What is this about Columbia? Murph and JP were supposed to stay on the base and not leave. They weren't I supposed to you, go anywhere. What is going on in Columbia? Does nobody follow the rules in Columbia? You can't. I mean, we're agents. We, you have to be able to talk to sources. You have to be able to do surveillance. You have to be able to check and verify and corroborate information. You can't do it sitting there on the base. So, um well, I'm going to need a memo on this, Chris. You're going to need to write yeah, me a memo. Uh, on I've, I've written a lot of memos in my day. Trust me. So, but that was our objective: establish relations with the police and the military, and you know, run the stuff through them. So that that's basically what we did. But to get back to your original question, the the main thing that really kicked stuff off, May of 1994, the military under Colonel Velasquez, very good man, very honest individual. Ended up getting set up by the Cali cartel later on and forced out of the bloque in, in uh, the military in Cali. Do we do a raid on Guillermo Palomari's office, the Siglo, Siglo 21 building? And, oh no, I'm sorry. They do what we do a raid. First raid is May, and I have to go back and edit this. 
The first raid is May 1994 on Chepe Santa Cruz's apartment called Edificio Chris. And inside the apartment, we find a huge IBM mainframe computer. It's an IBM AS400 mainframe computer. It is seven feet tall by about four feet wide. And it, co it cost well over a million dollars at the time. And this computer was able to run like crisscross telephone data. They were able to track phone calls. So Morgan, if you made a phone call to somebody in Medellin and you made it more than once, you were on a hit list because they thought you might be cooperating with the Medellin cartel. If there were phone calls to the embassy, the same thing. They had uh, access to motor vehicle records where they could run license plates through this computer. They were able to track telephone data, not only uh, of people suspected of being sources, but U.S. embassy personnel assigned to the embassy, diplomats. So um, they were able to track aircraft, uh, tail numbers. It was this huge intelligence treasure trove that uh, the Colombians realized, the military, that, hey, we don't have the capability to, to analyze this. So they gave it to DEA. We shipped it up to Reston. The IT guys, it took them three weeks just to crack the, crack the encryption on the uh, computer. And when they did, they found kind of like what I told you, but payoffs to police, payoffs to the military, payoffs to the DOS. See, and that's that's the whole thing. It's like with Al Capone. You want to bring somebody down, you go after one of the people you target is the money man, right? The accountant knows where the bodies are buried and where the money's gone. Well, this this raid was it was thought to be an intelligence center. So the raid was prefaced on that, not against Palomari. That was the one we that's the next raid that happens two months later. We'll get into that. But the corruption uh that came out of that, uh the level of payoffs that went all the way up into the government, the police, the military, it was staggering. And it was really like a shot across the bow to the US government. Like, holy shit, look at what we're up against. So that was like the first initial indication that, hey, these Cali guys really have their stuff together. This is not gonna be well, that kind of Easy. indicates Joe Toft, right? Because that was one of his, that was one of the things that he got sideways with everybody on, right? Was the corruption at the highest levels of the government, including the president? Well, exactly. Now that goes back to September 94, when, you know, Joe on his way out of Columbia says that Columbia is a narco democracy and the corruption goes to the highest levels, which it did. And Joe was absolutely right. The problem was that People were, he said it out loud. <laughs> well, he said it out loud as he was leaving, but yeah. the, the statement was made by a U.S. diplomat or a U.S. DEA person that had it come from somebody in Colombia, probably wouldn't have been a big deal. You know, I, so I think people more took offense that it was, it was a, an American you know, diplomat, so to say, that was, was saying that. But Joe was basing that on those narco cassette tapes, which were phone calls intercepted in June of 1994 between a journalist, Alberto Giraldo, and Miguel Rodriguez, where they were talking about corruption and paying people off and making campaign contributions to Ernesto Samper's presidential election. So it was, in, it was right there in black and white with the tapes. The tapes were leaked. It was out there. Joe compounded on that and made the statement as he was leaving, but uh, he was absolutely right in what he said. Just real quick, tell everybody who Gilberto is. So the the two main leaders of the Cali cartel are Gilberto Rodriguez Joruela 
who was the older brother, his younger brother, Miguel Rodriguez Horuela. And the two, number three guy in the, in the cartel was Jose Santa Cruz Londoño, a.k.a. Chepi. And the number four guy was Helmer Herrera Butrago, a.k.a. Pacho. So those were the four, you know, four horsemen, basically, of, of the Cali cartel. But, uh, yeah. The, How did they get along? They got you along know, great. They were all See, And that's kind of different than what happened with Pablo and some of his. He was killing some of his lieutenants and some of his main people. Yeah, he wasn't the brightest bulb on the tree. They, uh, <laughs> he's, he's a dim bulb now, very dim. <laughs> but that's, and so that's the significance of you saying that there was a raid on Chepi Santa Cruz Londoño's apartment where he found that computer. That's how significant that was. You're at the top four of the entire Cali cartel hitting that apartment. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And that, and like I said, that sent shockwaves through the U.S. government to find out how connected and how much influence the Cali cartel had over the Colombian government and the, and the are police. You telling, are, are you telling us and our worldwide audience of millions and millions of listeners, oh, maybe millions, you know, but th that the government, were they, I don't want to say that clueless, but did they truly not believe? I mean, where did this cognitive dissonance come from? Because at some point, if you're down there, it's like Mexico, you have to believe this corruption goes all the way to the top. Or did they truly believe that it didn't? Well, I think people understood that there was corruption within the police and the military, DAS and the government. But I don't think people realize to to what extent, you know, I mean, by some of the source information, they were telling you that, you know, 50 to 60 percent of the police and military in, 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 in Cali were compromised. So every other person that was there in any position, you know, mayors, senators, congressmen, whatever. So it was you were kind of fighting behind your back you, with, with the level of corruption that was there. So well, no, nobody really understood the level of sophistication of the Cali cartel either at that time, did they? I mean, it was no, shocking to no. come across all that phone records, tag records, airplane records. That main that IBM mainframe computer was, like I said, it sent shockwaves through the sophistication that that they had, you know, the radio networks that they had set up. They were, you know, encrypted call conversations. The it was it was staggering and it, it really got people's attention. And it it went, you know, two months later in July of 94, based on some of the stuff that came out of that computer, the military, you know, in Colonel Velasquez, we raid uh, Guillermo Palmari's office on Avenida Ford, the Siglo 21 building. And there, another treasure trove of documents. Uh, things that are found, payoffs, again, ledgers, incredible, incriminating corruption. Um, and then Palomari makes the statement that he was the accountant for Miguel and Alberto Rodriguez Oruela, which basically is, is a death sentence for him at that time, because he now is acknowledging that he works for the leaders of the Cali cartel, even though he said Hey, I'm the accountant. I manage their chain of legitimate drug stores. It's still associated Paul Amari to the Cali cartel. It associated him to all the documents that were seized in the computers at his office. And it associated him to the mainframe computer at Chepi Santa Cruz's office. So now a flood more of documents come out and records about payoffs to police, payoffs to the military, you know, people in the government. And now by July of 94, People are really getting like, hey, this cow is formidable. This is not going to be as easy as we thought. Their influence extends 
Yeah, while everybody was focused on Pablo, these guys were building up this network of intelligence and information. And speaking of that, did you, when you guys went through this, did you find, not that they were bad actors, but some of your own people, had you guys been caught up in this? Had they identified sources? Had they identified, you know, places where you guys were living? I mean, how much of DEA or other Americans were caught up in this intelligence stuff of Cali? At that point, not many, because our footprint was just starting to get into Cali. But later on, yes, they had intercepted our uh, phones at the police base. They were able, able to intercept our country attaché's telephone in the embassy. That's how much juice they had and how much influence they had with the phone company. They basically they intercepted the DEA country attaché's phone. They one day I was driving to work. This was later on. This is in 1995. And I'm driving to work, and I have the radio on, and I'm listening. I go, yeah, it sounds like Tony Seneca. He's, he must be giving an interview or something. And then, as because he was speaking in English, and then as I listen further, and I'm like, wow, this sounds familiar. This is a conversation. I was in his office when we had this conversation. So you the, were part of the conversation that's being played over the radio. I was in the office while Tony Seneca was speaking on the phone. That's how I, I, I recognized the phone call. I was like, hey, I've heard this phone call before. And I was, you know, I wasn't speaking. I was just, a, you know, in the phone, on the phone, uh, in the background listening. And what had happened, and this goes to the whole Paul Amari incident down the road, is that they were able to tap the phone in, in Tony Seneca's office in the embassy while he was speaking to, I think he was talking to Bobby Nieva, the old head of OF in Washington, D.C., Holy, I didn't renew this. Yeah. So they were able to, as we understood it through our sources and through Salcedo, which we can, we'll get to, that they were able to intercept between four and 500 telephone lines a month. The Cali cartel, this is the Cali cartel, not the police. They had way more sophistication and technology than the police or the military or anybody else. But they had a guy that worked in the phone company called Carlos Espinosa. And his, his nickname was Pincharito, like El Pinchado. And Pinchado is like a slang term when they wiretap a phone. So they were able to do that. And they were able to intercept the phone in the embassy. And they were also able to later on intercept. Uh, we had a phone. It was actually a secure phone. But at the, uh, the CMP, the Bloque police base in Cali, they were able to intercept that too. Holy cow! You remember? You remember those old devices they used to give us to encrypt a phone call? You 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 kind of velcroed it to the back of the phone, yeah, and, you had yeah, to, the, the, and they had to link up with the person you're talking to and all that crap. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So they Holy were there, and they had you know by accounts from sources, up to two thousand taxi drivers were on the payroll. So taxi drivers were just driving all over town. You know, anybody who looked suspicious, anybody who was a non-Colombian, anybody who was a foreigner, anybody who arrived from the airport, they would all report back to, to Cali in hopes of getting some money for, for their information. So it was basically like like working behind the Berlin Wall. Like you were like you. It's like the Stasi and they're just everywhere spying. Everybody's spying on everybody. It's like the old babushkas over in in Russia, where Russia, they know right. what's going on in their block, and they give everybody up. Yeah, and it, and for them it was easy because you remember dude, there were no Americans in Cali. There were there were none. no gringos, man. You show up, you stick none. out. You s- There's a six foot three blonde haired guy walking around, and Dave Mitchell is bigger than me. Yeah, he's tall. So, <laughs> so hey, that that's an interesting point. When you came into the country, 
How did you come under? Did you come under any kind of cover? I mean, do you have a cover story or did you come in as DEA agent Chris Feistel? No, we're all declared. We're all come in as DEA. So we had diplomatic immunity. So you had to declare who you worked for. Right. So when you're working with the police and the military or DAS or whoever you're working with over there, they, they know who you are, you know, because you're, you're working with them and you have embassy ID and, you know, so on and so forth. So everybody, everybody kind of knew who, who you were, which made things worse. And as time went on, you know, we had Dave and I and, and Jerry Salome, we had to work, you know, basically unilaterally. We had to work at night. We had to do, you know, our, our, overt stuff during the day with the police and the military and covertly we had to do our unilateral stuff at night so that we, you know, we weren't compromised or none of our sources were compromised. But, um, but, and then, so after those two incidents that we talked about the May 94 computer and then Paul Murray's office in July, that really opened a lot of eyes and it kind of told us what we were up against and going after the Cali cartel. And still, there was a lot of reluctance to go after them. Now, Colonel Velasquez, who was, I mean, they, the first day he showed up at the Bloque, I think in, I think he got there like in March of 94, they offered him a $300,000 bribe, the Cali cartel did. He immediately left the meeting, went back, told his superiors, hey, I was just approached by the Cali cartel. They tried to bribe me for $300,000. So Cali knew they could not bribe this man. They could not corrupt him, which he was a thorn in their side. So for maybe a year, less than a year, maybe, um, they did everything they could to try to get rid of Velasquez. So the only way that they can, their next bet, when Cali, they can't bribe you, what they try to do, it's like a movie. They discredit you. They try to discredit you. So Colonel Velasquez had a relationship with an informant that was working for him, that was giving him information. The Cali cartel found out about it. Uh, they approached the woman, basically under threat of, if you don't work with us, you're dead. So she turned double agent to Cali. She was able to lure Velasquez to a hotel room where they had it all wired up for video and sound. So they had the video and they sent it, you know, they told them basically, stop or this is going to get released. So Velasquez reported it. Kept working there. And, you know, he did another raid uh, where it was supposed to be Alberto, where Miguel's daughter was getting married at a, at a hotel. And it caused a big disruption. It was a, it was a trick that Cali played on him. And then finally they got Velasquez removed as the colonel in charge of the military bloke in Cali. So a man who had really made a lot of progress in the fight against Cali with the computer in Palomari's office was eventually transferred because of pressures from the Cali cartel. And then that's when Dave and I really started working more with the police because the replacement for the military who came in was kind of had a checkered past. And uh, we decided to shift all of our operations to work with the police. And that's when we mainly started working with the police at the Finca. It wasn't the bloke yet, but it was the police at the Finca in Cali. Jeez. Man. So that's really leading up. So finally, like you say, it's kind of a collection of things. Um, even though it didn't appear Cali wasn't as obviously nowhere near as violent as Pablo and Medellin was, but did they still have some violent? I mean, they obviously had some violence in them, right? I mean, informants would disappear, things would happen. To what extent were they 
overtly violence. I mean, because with Pablo, it was easy. He just blew up stuff. You know, it was Pablo because he's just blowing up stuff left and right. What was the kind of the signature, the hallmark of the Cali cartel? How did they handle things? Cali, if uh, if you were a player or someone of importance to Cali, you pretty much disappeared and were never found unless they wanted to make a statement, which most of the time they did not. But I can tell you of an incident um, in is either 94, early 95. There was a guy by the name of Rodimus Trujillo, who was the son of a Dominican dictator. He was Cali's point man in Panama. So he handled the smuggling routes out of Panama. And there were several large seizures that had taken place um, during that time. And Rodimus Trujillo was suspected of being an informant, which he never was. He was completely not. But you know how it is. If if five people have access to information and something happens, well, let's be sure we, we kill all five, right? So I think Rodimus kind of fell into that trap. So Rodimus Trujillo and a girlfriend and two other guys get lured to a finca outside of Cali. It's Pacho Herrera's finca called the Desert, a Desierto, for Miguel's, I think it was his 50th birthday party, right? So Rodimus Trujillo shows up, the girlfriend shows up, his two little bodyguards show up, and basically, to make a long story short, there is no birthday party. And um, they tell Rodimus, we know what you're doing, you're working with DEA, which he wasn't, and they basically torture him, the bag over the head, they beat him, they kill the girl who had nothing to do with anything, they kill the two bodyguards, had nothing to do with anything, they get them on the floor, and this is how they, but Cali would dispose of a lot of bodies, which is pretty gruesome, but they would uh, get the butcher knives. They would make the incision from the stomach all the way up. They would take out the, the intestines and, and the guts, put them in a bucket, take the clothes, put them in a bucket, put rocks in the stomach, wrap them up in, in plastic, wrap them up in the drapes from the finca, they would take them about a mile from uh, where the, this, this finca was, and they would throw the bodies off the bridge into the Cauca River. And the bodies, because they were weighted down with the rocks and their intestines were taken out, they wouldn't float. They would just sink to the bottom. And they disposed of many, 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 many bodies just like that. They burned uh, everything associated with them, you know, their, their innards, uh, their clothes, but what they did in Rodimus and the girlfriend's case is they took their passports. And then they had two people who resembled them slightly. Since they controlled the airport, they controlled everything. They gave these people their passports. They put them through the airport. They flew on a plane from Cali back to Panama or Costa Rica. I think they went to Costa Rica at this point. So when the investigation was launched as to what happened to Rodimus Trujillo and his girlfriend, Cali cartel. They left the country and they went back home or wherever. Cali cartel's explanation was very simple. Exactly. Yep. They flew in. They came to the party. They flew out. Here's their immigration records. You can check. They left Colombia on this date. They entered Costa Rica on this date. So if anything happened to them, it must have happened in Costa Rica. And that was a pretty common scenario. And, um, and actually, Dave Gaddis, when he was in Costa Rica had me look into that. And I was, you know, myself and Dave and Jerry, we were able to determine exactly what had happened to him. And although we could never prove it because we never found the bodies, but we know what happened because of witness testimony. 
Well, there was there was a scene in the in the Narco series about the Cali Cartel season three in which I think it's Pacho has a guy tied up to four motorcycles. So, is there any truth to that? Was that one of their techniques, or is that just straight out of Hollywood? That's no, that's actually another story. It's a little different than how they portrayed it in Narcos. But what happened there was is that, and you know this, Steve, better than anybody, the ongoing war between. Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel, right? So just to give you some context, the whole Cali-Medellin war starts back in late 1987 when one of Pacho's guys kills Negro Pavon, who was one of Pablo's guys. Pablo gets incensed and he wants uh, the killer dead. So they go to Pacho, Pablo calls Pacho and says, hey, Turn this guy over. He killed my man. I want him dead. Pacho's like, no, I'm not turning him over. And then Pablo goes, well, if you don't turn him over, he's dead and you're dead. So Pacho flees. He was in New York. Pacho flees. He's back in Colombia. He now becomes the fourth godfather, right? He's the fourth gentleman of Cali, for lack of a better word. So Pablo calls Alberto and says, turn over Pacho. Turn over the guy, Hilberto and Miguel say no. So it's game on. The war starts. And then the first shot across the bow is when one of the Cali assassins, uh, I think it was Pecoso, puts the car bomb at the Monaco building in January of 89, blows up the Monaco building. Pablo's inside. You know, Manuel, his daughter, loses a little bit of hearing, completely destroys the building. So then the, the, the war is on. So... Pablo, in retaliation, sends a team of about 20 sicarios to Cali to kill Pacho. And their plan is, is what they do is they rent a finca. They go to the farm owner and basically tell him, hey, we're going to stay here. We'll give you some money. They stage there. They, they dress in Colombian National Police uniforms. And they basically do an assault on a soccer field where Pacho is playing Pacho played soccer. He was a soccer, soccer fanatic. He'd play there every Friday, Saturday night. <clears throat> Medellin knew that. They launched this raid, and they basically drive the trucks onto the soccer field and just start shooting everybody. Pacho was able to escape, but the damage is done. 19 dead, 8 wounded. And what happens is, eventually, to jump ahead, Pacho's able to escape. Pacho's incensed. He wants revenge. They're able to track down at some point in time later on the owner of the finca where these Medellin assassins had staged. So they track him down and they basically tell him, you know, why did you do what you did? You should have known that that was a death sentence. He's, you know, he didn't have a good answer. So what they do is they basically, they get chains they tie his arms to one SUV and they get his legs and they tie them to another SUV. And they slowly start to inch forward, inch forward, inch forward. And it took, from what I understand, from what I've been told from sources, probably about a half hour until finally they just sped off in opposite directions and it basically pulled the, the farmer who owned the Finca apart. Jeez. So this is so brutal. 
and narcos they portrayed it on the motorcycles and it was a completely different event but that event being tied up and drawn and quartered yeah, actually did happen and you've used the word finca a lot translate that for non-spanish speakers when you say finca what are you referring to finca would be like a ranch you know uh a house in the country okay. but more more like a, like a ranch so picture of on the ponderosa Okay, your big ranch on a lot of open area, that would be the... That would be the finca. You know, comparable to a finca, right. So at what point did this all start leading now into... So these, like you see, this culmination of events start getting the um, attention of the government, of DEA. When did the beginning of a serious operation against the Cali cartel then start happening? So the... So from after July, after we seize Palomar's computer... You know, of course, we're doing. You're doing raids every day. You're we're doing stuff. We're not making a whole lot of progress. Um, we're at that point too. Dave, I, and Jerry were talking to the Colombian police about, hey, you got to reconstitute the bloke. We got to get rewards posted for these guys. Otherwise, you know, we're we're fighting with our hands tied behind our back. Had these guys had arrest warrants or anything out for them at that time? Were they fugitives? Um, what was their status at the point when you launched started doing this? They were all indicted multiple times in the United States. Uh, however, there wasn't really anything in Colombia, nothing, you know, no really good charges in Colombia, but multiple, multiple indictments in the U.S., but there's no extradition. So the hopes were, you know, you catch these guys, you share the evidence, you're able to build a case and keep them in jail in Colombia. So um, not until early 1995 is when things really start to heat up. The, the bloke starts to get reco reconstituted from Medellin into Cali. So the finca that we worked at, the ranch, the police base, which was up in the mountains, becomes the new setting for the bloque de Búsqueda in Cali. Um, in March of 95, uh, based on intelligence from us and the, and, the, and the CIA, the younger brother of the Rodriguez Huelas is able to be arrested. He's really a non-player. It's a non it's really nothing, but he ends up getting arrested. And so that kind of starts this, these enforcement operations going against Cali. Uh, Jorge Eliasir Rodriguez gets arrested in March. Um, so now they're finally, after eight or nine months, people are coming around. All right, we got to go after Cali. There's a little bit more will on the Colombian government to go after him, But DEA starts to be really limited in what we're doing because of the narco cassette thing, because of all the corruption going on. Um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Rodrigo Pardo at the time, sends a letter to our ambassador, Miles Frechette, with nine points, and he wants to limit what DEA can do in Colombia. You know, all operations, I don't remember the whole nine points, but it's DA needs to report everything that they're doing. All their sources need to be turned over to the Colombian authorities. You know, they can't do anything unilaterally. We can't do this. So they're basically tying our hands right now. They're really trying to restrict what we can do in the country. But, you know, we keep pushing on. DEA is uh, now. So Dave, myself and Jerry, we're all at this point now, we're staying in safe houses. We're doing all everything 100 percent unilateral. But DEA is sending people on a weekly basis to that bloque, right? Probably the same thing you guys had in Medellin, where there was a DEA presence 24-7, 365, 
at that police base just in case something happened. Well, actually, we lived at the base, so we didn't have the outside like you did, the outside living quarters. But there were other agents in, in Medellin that, mm-hmm. or in, in the, from Bogota that were living at the police base that were staying there. That we would keep up the appearance. Keep up the appearance. We'd give them some bullshit stuff saying, hey, you know, we got this from the, we got this information from Miami. Go raid this house, you know, and they'd, we'd call the agents that were there. They'd go to the colonel out there and they'd go and raid the place, even though we knew we probably wouldn't get anything. You're just doing classic misdirection right now. Keep them busy on one side. But you brought up something though, because when Steve and Javier was down there, they had, and Steve, do not call them clowns in action. It's the CIA. (laughs) But they had kind of a, um, uh, a, a very tenuous relationship, let's say, including up until the day Pablo was killed when the CIA guy left Steve without a ride when he was the last guy standing there. How did your relationship, because you just mentioned CIA a little bit ago, how did the relationship with CIA change and how was it working with those guys in terms of getting intelligence and uh, doing these operations with Cali? Uh, our relationship with them at the time I was there was very good. Um, we stayed at a lot of their safe houses we utilized some of their vetted units since DEA didn't have any at the time. Um, we worked on joint operations together. They had a very good uh, kind of like intel listening post and stuff set up on the Air Force Base uh, where we stayed at a lot of times. So we rotated when we were there between, say, the military base, the police base, the Air Force Base, Columbian Air Force Base, and then safe houses throughout the city. So we would go back and forth. And, and a lot of that stuff was supplied by by the agency since they had a lot of the money and they had a lot more resources than we did. So we worked very well together. We had good personal relationships. We played golf with those guys. So uh, uh, my experience working with those guys, even the second and third time I was there, was was always was very good. It was very good. Yeah, our problem was it was just the chief of station. He you know he set the tone for the whole office, and once he moved on, things calmed down. Yeah. So we. We were fine and we were able to piggyback on a couple operations. And, you know, once we started to develop a lot of the good sources that we did and going after the cartel, uh, Cali guys, we even took along some of the CIA guys with us because, you know, they had took us on early on and we utilized their, like I said, their safe houses, their units. So, yeah, we worked we worked well with them. What drove the CIA to, to work with you? I mean, obviously that became one of their priorities as well, right? So did you have, besides CIA, did you guys have any support from uh, U.S. Special Forces, any Delta, any SEAL, um, anything like that while you were down there? No, um, not on the ground, no. And, um, and the reason the agency was after them is, look, let's look at the time frame, right? Pablo goes down. The Berlin Wall goes down. I mean, leading up to this, it's years before. Um, Saddam Hussein is driven out of Kuwait. Communism falls. You know, there's there was nothing else really for the intelligence community to do except go after Kali. So they threw all hey the guys, resources. Hey guys, let's hop on a plane. Let's go to Colombia. Let's go have some fun. Yeah. So uh, it was kind of like Kali was the only game in town back then. Well, it's good to have resources, right? So, uh, <laughs> what what is the most interesting resources they brought to bear that you can talk about? Ooh, money for sure was one. Um, I can tell you a story that it had to be it had to be late '94. It was before the end of the fiscal year, and we 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 would fly on their plane a lot uh, to Cali. Our plane was tied up or whatever. We would fly on their aircraft with their with their guys, and 
we flew from Bogota to Cali the one day on, on an airplane. And, you know, we're loading boxes into the, the plane in Bogota. And when we land in Cali, we start loading, you know, uh, boxes off the plane. And I'm like, hey, man, what, uh, hey, dude, what's, uh, what's in the boxes? And, and the, 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 the case officer, he doesn't even blink an eye. He goes, money. I'm like, come on, dude. It's not money. Look at all these boxes. What Seriously, what's in there? He goes, money. So we end up going to the military base, you know, and they take the boxes and they get in there. Money. <laughs> how much? Money. That was a lot. I don't know how much, but it was a lot of money. <laughs> um, you know, so they were, you know, helping the, the military with their, you know, their finances or operational expenses, whatever it was for. Um, technology, equipment. Those guys had the latest technology that we could only dream about having back then, you know, intercept equipment, uh, everything. It was, uh, you know, they, uh, hey, I give them credit. They're, they're good at what they do in collecting intel. They had a lot of good intel. The only, like I said, the issue was is what, what do they do with that intel? How do they exploit that intel? For us, you know, intel unused to DEA, for me anyway, operationally is kind of intel wasted their thing was well i can tell you you know miguel lives here and he leaves at 602 and he does this and he does that i go yeah but if you're not going to do anything what good is that information i you know i don't care if you can tell me he goes to the bathroom at 10 o'clock great but well let's do a raid at 10 o'clock when he's in the bathroom that's how i would use the intelligence and that's what we did like let's let's use that somehow let's let's get that intel let's exploit it let's plan an operation and let's do something with it so um, so I think that's where we kind of came in on the DEA side is we were more, you know, operationally inclined and we can figure out what to do with that Intel quickly. So it, we kind of made a good little, you were actually able to take the intelligence team. and make it actionable and actually get results out of it as opposed to, and good that look, and quite frankly, that's not their job down there too. You know, they, they don't have arrest powers that, you know, they're, they're, they're part of the intelligence community, which DEA is, but they have a different mission than you and you're, you're down there to, kick some Cali ass. And that's, I mean, that obviously helps. So what takes you now in that direction? Now, now you're starting to get resources. Now it's taking you some months, but you're getting a plan together. What really starts coming together? What are some of your first major operations that happen out of this? And when is the first time you actually strike a blow, you actually impact the Cali cartel to the point of where they go, oh, you know, we just took one to the chin. That one hurt. Okay. So the first real event that took place when we were close I don't think it's, it didn't really strike a blow to him, but it was a wake-up call. It was like the alarm going off by, for the Cali cartel to say, hey, we need to take these guys a little bit more seriously because they're starting to get close. And that was in around May of 95. We're, uh, we're able to speak to a source who provides us with really good information about where Miguel Rodriguez is at. And the info, they provide us with an address. It's in Ciudad Jardín, and the house is owned by a guy named Solomon Prado. So we're able to launch an operation on that house, and we do not arrest Miguel Rodriguez at that point. But when we're there, we recognize people who are close to him that were in the house, so we knew that the information was really good. And after we had left, we found out later on that Miguel was actually at that residence 
that he was hiding under like a makeshift that we call like a caleta, like a hiding space under a jacuzzi in the backyard. And they waited for us to leave. And we did leave. And then they ended up getting Miguel out of the, uh, out of the house. So that was really like that first shot across the bow where Callie was like, Hey, these guys were close. Their information was good. Uh, we don't know how they got to this location. They came up with a theory on how we got there, which was completely wrong, which was perfect because it protected the source that we were using. So that really, you know, that opened their eyes a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And it, we knew we were close too. So we knew we were on the right track. So how did that, how did that change then them handle it? Because before it kind of seemed like everything was, I don't want to say gentlemanly because that's their nickname, but it's kind of like things were low key, right? Did this event really start changing their response to it? I mean, was it still being the gentlemanly way or did they start becoming more overt about their tactics and the things they were doing or, or for them, was it just business as usual and just a heightened state of awareness? It was more of a heightened state of awareness, but they started to change how they operated, right? So they they limited, back then what they would do is people would come to their house. So Miguel and Hilberto would be staying in one, one location, or Miguel would be in one place, Hilberto would be in another place. If they wanted to have a meeting, they would send a car. I'd send a car to pick up Steve. The car would drive around, you know, doing heat runs and SDRs, we call them surveillance detection routes, and ultimately take them to where Miguel was or Hilberto was, they'd have the meeting and they would leave. So they stopped having a lot of those, you know, in-person meetings. They Or they limited them. I shouldn't say stop. They limited them because they were worried about people being followed and they just tried to up their security a little bit more. So it was just more of a heightened state of awareness. Uh, they didn't react or anything to what we were doing, but uh, they just increased their their security and their awareness. And who was in charge of their security back then? Well, Hilberto had a guy by the name of Bruno Murillo, who was in charge of his security. And the, Miguel had an individual, two guys, uh, Mario Del Basto, who was a retired major from the Colombian military, and Jorge Salcedo. Salcedo was a, a, a captain in the reserves from the military, and him and Mario Del Basto had worked together for many years and were good friends. So they kind of had their split security. Pacho had his own security detail, and Chepe also had his own security detail. But when they came together, it was usually Del Vasto and Salcedo who were the ones coordinating security for when they had big events or when they would all meet together. And they they were running their own um, surveillance groups, like you talk about the taxi drivers. They were in charge of all that stuff, right? They were in charge of so Cali was set up. They had five divisions, as they called it. It was like a CEO, like a corporation, right? This is good. This is good. They had the military division. Oh, let me start. They had the drug di- trafficking division. They had the financial division. They had the military division. They had the legal division. And then they had the political division. So the, the Cali cartel was divided into those five areas. Military was obviously police, military, corruption, surveillance, technology, eavesdropping, tapping phones, all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, and it was extensive on you know, exactly how they had everything set up. Well, didn't one of their strengths then also become one of their business weaknesses? Because the more information you collect, the more stuff you collect like that, the more people that get involved. Did that ever prove to be a uh, insertion point for you guys from a 
um, you know, operational standpoint, we're able to get information out of them that way. I mean, at some point you become so big, you can't help but leak information somewhere. So one of the big downfalls for Cali was is that Miguel was the hands-on day-to-day operational manager for the cartel. He was a complete micromanager. He had to have his hands in everything that sounds went like on. a corporate environment. Yeah, <laughs> he he worked from the morning until you know four or five the next morning. So in part of that, and this was why Cali. Cali was so formidable and successful in the United States is that they had, let's take Miami, for example, or New York, either one. They had, say they had 15 different cells operating in New York and Miami. Each of those 15 cells in New York reported to one cell head, right? That cell head didn't know the other 14 cell heads in New York. Right. So they were they were compartmentalized, super compartmentalized, just like a terror, just like Al Qaeda, just like a terrorist organization. That cell head would report to like a regional cell head who would report back to Miguel. So Miguel Rodriguez was on the phone every day with these cell heads in New York, in Miami, in Atlanta, wherever they were. This is all he did is he talked on the phone and he had meetings all day long. And then as the hours got on later in the day. He was on the phone with the Italians, with the Russians, with everybody else in Europe. So he was completely, you know, micromanaging everything. And then, of course, because of all the phone taps and everything going on in Miami, especially through Operation Cornerstone, they were able to intercept and target a lot of these cell heads and start knocking them off one by one. Boom, boom, boom. Significant players in uh, in Miami, New York and elsewhere. And of course, when these people get arrested, they they started to cooperate. So. The investigation in Miami, the DEA Customs Joint Operation Cornerstone, started to really develop a lot of good intelligence and information and indict significant people in Florida, which really put a dent in, you know, a lot of the Cali operations. And Miguel was getting upset about it. Guys were getting knocked off. More people were getting indicted. More indictments came out against Cali. And then finally, in June of 1995, there was a huge RICO indictment that came out against all of the members of the Cali cartel. Guillermo Palomari, who we talked about before, who was Chilean, now became a target for execution because he was now eligible for extradition. And these things all started to culminate in that early to mid-1995, which started to really put a dent and knock down uh, the Cali guys. Now, was he still, he wasn't in custody, right, Palomari? Palomari was in hiding from the day that they raided his office in July of 94. Mm -hmm. He was completely underground because he knew that uh, the Cali cartel wanted to kill him. So he was hiding. He was underground. He wasn't talking to his wife. He wasn't seeing his kids. He was basically holed up uh, in Cali, changing locations all the time, trying not to get killed. And, And that led to something happened to his wife, didn't they? Didn't something happen to her? Yeah, that was later on after we were able to get to Palomari. I don't know if we want to get into that now or just kind of cover that chronologically. Yeah, we'll cover that chronologically because now you've got the four major targets. I mean, obviously the four major targets are starting to feel the heat, right? So you've got the indictments coming down. You've got the RICO, which is the racketeering influence corrupt organization, a very powerful tool, right, that the government has to really go after the, the entire tentacles of the organization. When is the beginning of the end for the Cali cartel? When, when, as you look back on it now, when can you say this is when um, we knew that the this is when the end was going to be inevitable, that they were all going to come down? So, and, it, and 
to get to this point took um, over a year, but then everything happened very, very quickly over the next couple months. It was it, it, starting in early 95 until the summer of 95, there were like major events going on every day. But once we got on that roller coaster, things started to happen very quickly. And the main point where this all started was in late May, early June, first day or two of June in late May, we a cable comes into the embassy where we start reading it. You know, Ruben Prieto and Jerry Salome, Dave Mitchell, and myself, we're looking through these cables and we're we're reading and it starts talking about an informant or a source who's providing information on Hilberto Rodriguez. And he talks about uh, an individual by the name of Flacco, who is Hilberto's like executive assistant, is with him during the day, answers his phone, makes his phone calls, entertains visitors, all this stuff. And that he is with Hilberto every day. So right around that same time, we're talking to another source of information who provides very, very similar information about this guy Flacco and we're able to uh, identify him his name was Alberto Madrid Mayor and the other source says yeah I, I know who that guy is I I know him personally I can actually meet him so the, to keep it simple because it could get confusing a source one is an informant that is actually in Ecuador that provides us through teletype we see the information about Hilberto Rodriguez's executive assistant. Source number two says, yes, that information is correct. I know that guy. His name is Alberto Madrid Mayor, goes by the name of Flacco. And I can meet with this guy so that you can identify him. So uh, myself, Jerry, Ruben Prieto, and Dave Mitchell, we, since we don't have our own vetted unit, we don't have resources at the time, we're able to team up with uh, the intelligence community and utilize uh, their... Why do you roll your eyes when you say that? Uh, <laughs> everybody knows what you mean by that. Um, so we're able to utilize their Columbia National Police vetted unit. They had a Columbia National Police very well-trained vetted unit that was polygraphed, drug tested, and everything. And uh, that was the most reliable thing that we had at that point in time. So... Uh, source number two is able to set up a meeting with Flacco. We'll call him Flacco just to keep it simple. And we surveil the meeting. We're able to identify him. We get photographs. And we're able to follow him back to where he lives. And he lives in an area of Cali in the southern end of Cali called Ciudad Jardín, which is a very exclusive area. So now we know who he is. We know where he lives. And we've confirmed the fact that he is Hilberto Rodriguez's executive assistant. So we set up surveillance the next day. It's uh, the early part of June, 1995. And the guy comes out of the apartment. We were teamed up in, the, in cars with the vetted unit. And it's like out of a movie, which you see. This guy, he gets in a taxi cab. He drives for a mile. He gets out of the taxi cab. He goes across the street. He gets on a bus. He goes the other way. He gets off the bus. He walks across the street again. He gets in a, another taxi. He drives down the road. So we, we lost this guy in about 10, <laughs> 10 minutes. And that, yeah. that, that, might be, uh, that might be giving us a little bit more credit than we deserve. But yeah, uh, It's a lot harder than people think. Uh, but this guy was taking extreme 
security measures, extreme techniques. I mean, he's using he was using surveillance detection routes. He was well. These are things that they teach you, like CIA case officers and you guys. I mean, they're called SDRs, right? They're designed to expose if there's any surveillance and allow you to go what's called black, free of surveillance, um, and get away from uh, the people who want to track you. That's exactly right. And he obviously had done this before, and he was very good at it. So we went back the next. So of course the surveillance is over in 10 minutes. So we lose them. So we go back the next day and we start all over again. And he does the same thing. He comes out, he gets in a taxi, he drives down the road, he gets in a bus, he gets off the bus, he crosses the street, he walks around, he changes, he puts disguises on, he puts a hat on and sunglasses, changes his jacket. Like what? So we did a little bit better the second day. We probably followed him about 15 minutes and then we lost him. <laughs> so, um, then we said, you At know, least you're honest about it. <laughs> well, Hey, did you have any indication if, 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 was he just figured this out cause he watched some Tom Clancy movies or did they actually maybe get some training from some, you know, adversarial or hostile, you know, intelligence service? Hey, players, the answer to this question and everything else is going to be in part two coming out on Thursday. So make sure you stay tuned for part two of Chris Feistel and the Gentleman of the Cali Cartel. In the meantime, go and visit us over on our webpage, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got merchandise. We've got uh, our mailing list and pictures of Chris back in the day. Also, follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But also make sure you go over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got a couple controversial episodes coming out where we take on some hot topics right now. And Murph and I give you our view strictly from an investigative standpoint. But these are very serious issues that we decided to take a dive into. And hopefully you guys like what we did. So head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes for that content and a ton of other content. In the meantime, stay tuned for part two of Chris Feistel and the Gentleman of the Cali Cartel coming out Thursday. Thursday.